0: Hello and welcome to The Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And you will notice that we've got two guests uh, virtually with us today. We've got one, is a usual co-host, and that is...
1: Fedor, under the PC. And Fedor, in <laughs> the, the way
0: he always loves to do, he gets us interesting guests and pushes further than I would ever do. And we've got a special guest on today. Um, why don't you give a little introduction for yourself, Peter? I know I wasn't
2: organized. Uh, you should. Uh, okay. Well, my name is, uh, Peter, Peter Hyatt, and I'm a pastor in Denver, Colorado. Um, gosh, I'm married, have four kids that are m- most of them in their thirties. So I'm an old guy now, uh, was ordained in the Presbyterian church USA and then also ordained in the evangelical Presbyterian church. And, you know, I'm the pastor of an independent church went to fuller seminary, uh, I don't know, what else do you want to know?
0: That's that's great. It's Anything perfect. else? Okay.
2: All and right.
0: <laughs> for context, uh, for our viewers and for Peter and Theodore and everybody else, Theodore found Peter's lectures and sermons, I think, online. You've got a YouTube channel yourself, Peter, right? Or your church does?
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think I have a YouTube I have a YouTube channel and then we, we put sermons on YouTube and then I have a, a website, uh, relentless dash love uh, that has a lot of my material, written material, videos, that kind of stuff on it.
0: Great. So if any of our viewers want to go look further and see it straight from the horse's mouth, they can go to um, that website or find him on YouTube. Theodore was searching on YouTube um, as he does, I think, probably related to hell or, or something around that, because that's kind of one of your distinctives, uh, Peter. And in any case, sent us uh, one of his sermons, one of Peter's sermons, and me and Sebastian um, had some points of contention on it. So we thought or really Theodore thought, let's bring them on and, and discuss those to see, are we aligned? Is there something that we should be considering? So like we always do in found cause, we don't want to make it a super softball interview, but we're also not uh, vicious. So hopefully this is constructive for everyone involved. <laughs> All right. With that being said, I've been talking a lot. I always do. Theodore, you have like a whole design for this. You've got some questions. So how about you tee us up with your questions and get Peter to espouse uh, where he's aligned with us and where he's not.
1: Okay. Um, so I was thinking to try to keep this to an hour or less, so we don't go too much. Um, I was thinking we would analyze three main concepts or arguments from, for, uh, universal atonement. Is that like the, is that a good term?
2: Or yeah. I've never heard that before, but that works. Oh, okay. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking the limited atonement in the tulip for Calvin. Yeah. Yeah. Unlimited yeah. atonement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um... And then uh, analyze some of those concepts from your mini-book or Apologetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll pose like three concepts from scripture that we find convincing. Um, and then we'll just discuss all that.
2: Okay, sounds good.
1: Fire away. All right. Um, I think a good starting question would be, what would you say makes you distinct amongst uh, most American Christians?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I, I think one thing that makes me or us a little bit distinct is that we believe two things that I, at the same time, that I don't think other people necessarily believed at the same time. And uh, one of them is that God is in the business of redeeming all people and all creation. And the other is that scripture is authoritative. Um, and in my experience, the church kind of goes a liberal direction, which I think is an awful lot like the, like the Sadducees in, in the New Testament, where you, you grab onto verses that God is love and then you, you don't take the other verses, uh, very seriously. So you kind of lose biblical authority. On the other hand, you have, uh, the conservative side that, the, well, they say they take Scripture very with with a great deal of authority, but they end up throw end up throwing out uh, passages that speak about the redemption of all. And I think Scripture testifies that God is in the business of redeeming all things. So I guess I'm a little a little bit different that way. I think maybe another way I'm also a little bit different. Well, I think the church has been divided between that liberal and conservative wing. Um, and in the Protestant church, it's been divided between, uh, kind of Calvinists and Arminians. And I think I'm, I think my view kind of pulls all of those things together.
1: Sure. And I remember one thing from your book. Um, there are like three premises, like God is, uh, all powerful. God is all good. And then there's a third um, and you'd say like calvinist Calvinism holds to like uh, two of out of the two out of the three. Uh, Armenians hold to two out of three and but then you would just get rid of the third
2: well, yeah, so I, I think what you're maybe what you're talking about is an argument that Tom Talbot who is is a philosopher and wrote the book The inescapable Love of God talks about, which makes this makes a lot of sense to me. He just said, you really can't believe three things about. There are three things that Christians believe that you really can't believe all at once. And uh, number one is that God is all-powerful. Number two is that God is absolute love, that he is love. And number three, that there's a place where he endlessly torments his own creation. And so he would say... um, a Calvinist believes that God is all-powerful, but usually fudges on the love part, because then you have to define love in real ways, but they hang on to this place of endless torment. Arminians will hang on to the idea that God is all love. In other words, he, he wants to save everybody, but he's not, he's not able to save everybody, and then they hang on to this place of endless torment. So I would argue that God is all love and God is all powerful and there is no place of endless torment and there's a place of torment there is a the wrath of God the only way to the father is through the son Jesus is the one that conquers the works of the evil one and he's the door and he's the way um, so I, I would go I think you can say God is all powerful and God is absolute love and he'll succeed so in that way, I think this view brings the best of Calvinism and the best of Arminianism together. Because I think Arminians are trying to guard something that's important, and Calvinists are as well. Okay. Did that, did that answer your question, Theodore? Yeah. Yep. Okay. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the part. I was in about terms it. of a theological paradigm, then, um, I, I think. Uh, Let's see, Michael. You said you were you 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 all were mostly Calvinists, and uh-huh. I consider myself to be one. I just take limited atonement out of the mix. So this is, you know, out of the five the five fingers of Calvinism, it's this it's this middle finger that's the problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's that's the limited atonement. So if you just take that one out, then that's what I am. I'm a four point Calvinist.
0: Yeah, and I- I'll say. Uh, Theodore read the whole treatise, um, which I really appreciate because I did not. Uh, but he gave us the lowdown on kind of your general positions and some of your, your key points. And that it's an intriguing one to me, because, like you said, Peter, um, we also stand against the uh, liberal leanings of the church that tends to be God is all loving and doesn't send Hindus um, to. You know, it doesn't, there's no consequence for being Hindus. There's no consequence for not loving him in life, um, which we both stand against, as well as taking the Bible seriously. Um, so the universal atonement is usually a position or not your exact position, of course, but the idea that everybody ends up getting saved is usually a position reserved for um, people who do not take the Bible seriously. And because you do, and you argue it from a biblical position, I appreciate that a lot because then we have common ground, right? Like at least, um, you're not coming from it, from a, I don't really believe in God and making up my own God position. Right, you're right. Trying to use yeah, the scripture that's to great. To justify it. Yeah.
2: and 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 it's important to i mean a lot of people don't realize this but uh, some would argue and, and i think they're probably right that for the first 500 years of the church most theologians were what you would call christian universalists and it wasn't until the church became part an official institution in the roman empire that they under the pressure from the emperor um, Roman theologians started postulating that unless you agreed with a priest while you were alive in this in this life, well then you then the the gig was up. You, there was no repentance after death, and um, so it, it's not it, it's it's a minor view now, but historically hasn't been a minor view. It's also, I think, the theology of people like Karl Barth and. The Torrance brothers, and also the Pope. I mean, things the Pope has said recently. So it, it's a, it's a lot uh, better supported view than most people would would realize.
0: Yeah, we have um, just for viewers, longtime viewers of Found Cause, I um, know that we've talked about the Pope's position and hell in general <laughs> for a couple times, and we probably agree. I don't know what Pope's position is. He's kind of guarded on it because Catholic Church is um, pretty fierce dogmas right. that they like to defend, but he's definitely made intonations that that all. Are saved somehow whether it's your exact position or or some other one something yeah. something to the extent that people right get yeah and, uh not i don't want to get into like a crazy rabbit hole but do you know like a, a source or a believer in the early christianity prior to nicaea um that would have espoused this like i can think of origin that that's one church father yeah and then birthless.
2: probably probably gregory of Nyssa would be the mm. the other that would be most mm. well known it was, I have heard it was kind of was yeah, and Greg, Gregory is pretty uh, blunt about it. I think many of the other Church Fathers are as well. But part of the problem comes in translation. So they can use a word like everlasting, and you and you have to ask, well, what is the Greek word behind that word everlasting? And they can talk about Hades, and it gets translated as hell. And they can mention Gehenna, it gets translated as hell. So there, there are all sorts of language issues. So you have to read them carefully. But it's pretty clear that... Um, definitely Origen and most certainly Gregory of Nyssa and several others like uh, Clement and Athanasius, uh, they they all speak this way. So, but but what's confusing for people is they'll also speak about uh, people being destroyed and annihilation, which I think is part of recreation. So you kind of have to step back and ask some big uh, questions regarding your paradigm and w- w- your conceptions of space and time, uh, all sorts of related issues in order to have a good conversation.
0: Okay. And yeah, I, I think Bible-believing Christians are always fighting over early church fathers. Um, so it's probably not that productive to like, get into exactly what they believe because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It matters what the Bible has to say. But you're, I appreciate right. your approach in saying they, they may have believed it and there's at least room for them to believe well, it.
2: Well, and what's fascinating about, about it is that they, remember, these are the guys that read the Bible in their original language. So... I mean, really, the concept of infernalism or an endless hell uh, it became much more widespread once the church was centered in Rome, and so you had theologians like Augustine, who was brilliant and wise, but he didn't read the Bible in Greek, he read it in Latin, he read a translation, and so there are some key translation issues that have affected the conversation for 1,000, 1,500 years.
0: Uh, I mean, my my local historian is right, sitting to my mm-hmm. to my right. Um, I think. I mean, I don't. I'm really a novice in church history, so forgive me. But uh, Jerome is yeah. contemporary with Augustine, right? Jerome translate the translates um, into the Vulgate into Latin. So I would think Augustine spoke Greek or read Greek, but he didn't read. <clears throat> uh, no, he didn't read no. Greek. Okay, well, no, Agu- Augustine was purely a Latin person, and Jerome uh, criticized him for and not following what he was what he was in translating because jerome was to my knowledge fluent in both hebrew and greek hence why he could translate into latin and origin as well
2: and and at one time augustine was a universalist he even admits as much and then he talks about most people being sympathetic to this view so but i'm not a church historian either i just have spent a lot of time talking to some um so all that to say this this is a minor view in American Christianity now, but it's not a minor view in church history, and and I don't think and it, I would think Eastern Orthodox Eastern Orthodoxy allows for this uh, probably much more than most Western denominations.
0: You know, it's kind of an enigma, the Eastern Orthodox. Again, not to get in another rabbit hole, but we have um, yeah. we've done a couple episodes, and there's a, a particular commentary view of ours that that is espoused some kind of interesting beliefs about the afterlife from the Eastern Orthodox perspective, the American Eastern Orthodox. I am not going to make any blanket statements only because I think that they are a lot less unified than we make them out to be just because they're diverse and, and their viewpoints just like we are um, just like Protestants are. So, um, I agree with you. There are definitely some that have some non-tradition, non-American traditional views of the afterlife.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's fair.
0: Okay. Theodore, I've been taking up too much time. You, uh, Move on here. Other <laughs> questions.
1: Okay, so the I wanted to get into like the scripture scriptural concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, so three things: uh, the meaning of like all as in like making uh, uh, like all being saved, and then making all things new. Um, and then, what does it mean that all of Israel will be saved or reconciled uh, and made new? and yeah so
2: I like the way uh, your brain thinks Theodore those are all my questions 20 years ago <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> I tried to distill your book into some bite-sized things that we could chew on um, yeah so, I,
2: so go ahead
1: okay um, so one of the well so I got maybe we can go over two verses um, Romans five eighteen and 2nd Corinthians 5 verse 14 for this first Mm -hmm. point of uh, uh, all being saved. Mm -hmm. So Romans 5, verse 18 um, says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Um, And then, so uh, my perspective, I'd go back to Romans 4, verse 16, which I think clarifies that, it's the, the promise which is attained by faith will be guaranteed to all descendants on the condition of faith. Um, so Abraham's descendants are not only those who are of the law, but are also those of uh, faith of the faith of Abraham. Um, and then Romans nine verse six um, says that not all who descend from Israel are Israel. And Romans 11, Paul writes, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Yeah. Um, Because it's the remnant of Israel who has turned to Christ. So as to have the veil removed.
2: Yeah. I'm laughing because you're asking questions that I just spent like two years answering. So we just (laughs) preached all the way through Romans for the last two years in my church. So you can go online on YouTube and listen to all those sermons and all of these pieces in detail. But at the initial glance, let me say several things. To to American ears, it seems like Paul is contradicting himself in several places. And I don't think he is contradicting himself. Um, one thing that you said a moment ago, Theodore, is that this is conditioned upon faith. And there are places in Romans where we'll speak of, you know, we're justified by um, by the faith, faith in Jesus. But... In the Greek, a more literal translation would even be we are justified by the faith of Jesus. And so what I would argue that Paul is saying throughout Romans is that faith is the very seed that comes to us. And when you get to Galatians, Paul speaks that way. He talks about when faith came, and he makes it analogous to when Jesus came. And that the promised seed that is in Abraham, and the promised seed that's passed on through Abraham, really is Christ. And when Christ um, comes... uh, when Christ rises within a person he manifests his faith and hope and and love but paul i would argue is making the argument well he's dealing with the question of what do we do with israel here these are the chosen people and they're not believing the gospel so how is it that israel israel could reject the gospel and will they be saved in the end he goes through all sorts of um well, he keeps going back to his main point over and over again, which is that um, all are, let's, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified um, through through the faith of Christ Jesus, through the atonement that's in His blood. The life is in His blood. The faith is in His blood, and He gives that faith to us. So he keeps coming back to that theme in like a circular fashion, and then arguing uh, with people with. Either folks in the church in Rome, or people that would oppose this position, that God is in the business of justifying all. And the biggest uh, the biggest uh, problem with that idea in Paul's mind is is Israel. How on earth could Israel reject God and then be redeemed? I think all of Romans reaches its pinnacle in romans eleven thirty two where, and this was a verse that really put me over the edge, where uh, Paul writes, um, uh, um, what am I trying to say? God consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. So he's gone through all of his arguments and it's a very, it's a very Calvinistic kind of argument. He's, he's saying uh, that uh, God consigned all the disobedience in order that he may exhibit his mercy, and it's his mercy that creates faith. That's a very Calvinistic sort of thing to say, by the way. Um, so Calvinist doesn't believe that faith is your work. Calvinist would believe that faith is this gift, and but then Calvin and Luther would then argue for a limited atonement. Luther, not all the time, but uh, all really does mean all, and if you follow Paul carefully through Romans, I believe he's saying that Jesus died for all and Jesus is in the business of redeeming all. So like he says in Corinthians, as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. And and when you follow the logic of um, Romans 5 and Romans 3 and Romans 11 and Romans 8, um, I, I think it it makes perfect sense that he's in the business of redeeming all. And then in between those statements, he argues with himself, but he concludes with the Romans, Romans 11:32. So, and then, and then right after he says that, he, he says, so who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has first given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then he goes into 12, one talking about offering yourself as a, as a sacrifice. So, um, you asked a huge question and there's a huge answer that involves the entire study of Romans, but I think Rom- Romans 11.32 is the turning point uh, or, the, or kind of the pinnacle of his argument.
0: Yeah, and just to make sure that I understand you, and I'll sum it up really quick, mm-hmm. this, this position of yours, uh, one of the argument here is that there are scriptures, many of them, including Romans 5, like we just talked about and Second Corinthians, and then some others that refer to the the justification the the raising again the righteousness being imputed to all people so like first timothy yeah. says all men um are reconciled to god romans 5 says consequently just as one trespass result in condemnation for all people so also run righteousness result in justification for all people you and not just you but your church and the movement are arguing yeah. that all people are redeemed forcibly by like in a calvinistic way god god enacts the mercy on everyone um Regardless yeah of the so case.
2: so you you just said something important and that is you said redeem forcibly but the problem in dealing with God is that God is the creator of all things so we exist forcibly in a sense and that we've mm-hmm. been we're here nobody decided to be born at least. I I don't think they're they're aware of that. They're talking to fellow Calvinists.
0: I don't have a problem with God changing hearts by by force. Right,
2: right, right. So so the argument would be, yeah, God um, transforms hearts, but he does it through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is really what um, Moses talks about in Deuteronomy, that, you know, he says, choose this day. Well, he, you know, he says, this commandment is not too hard for you. It's on your mouth and on your tongue. Well, when you get to Paul... Paul's gonna. Paul argues in Romans that that commandment is the word of faith, that it is somehow Jesus, that Jesus is a promised seed. And Jesus is the way God transforms our hearts or cuts out the old heart and gives us a new heart, uh, just as Moses prophesied would happen.
0: Well, let me press, um, because theater did, and, and you mentioned it a little bit, let me press on a couple things. Um, of the, the other Romans things, because as we traditionally read through Romans, as I read through Romans, I see other stopping points that as Paul is saying that all are redeemed, he also caveats it with those who aren't. And I would say it limits all. And you said all means all, meaning don't don't caveat it. And, um, go ahead, Theodore.
1: And uh, I'm just thinking about time because this is the first point. Sure. So, I mean, how
2: much time do we have?
0: I mean, we, we can go as long as we need um I think this is worth because this is the first you,
2: point I think it's worth kind of hashing out. Well, I can I could go longer. I just got to have my chicken strips at a certain point, so <laughs> you know we can always break uh, for
0: dinner too. Uh, yeah,
2: and and we can do this again if you want. So um, it's it's a but but let me ju- let me just say this kind of in a, a broad way. I, I do think that we all wrestle with scripture, and there are scriptures that seem to contradict each other. And as I rest, as I've wrestled with scripture for the last, my dad was a pastor. I've been preaching for for decades, um, and and I'm pretty anal retentive, so I don't want to vi viol- I don't want to viol- I have a big a great respect for scripture but you but everybody carries around a a particular view or a paradigm of what scripture looks like and you have scriptures that support your paradigm and scriptures that don't support your paradigm and then you try to deal with the ones that are ex- exceptions the more i preached the, the more i had trouble ju- um understanding the non-inclusive texts in light of the inclusive texts um so i do have a a paradigm in my head, from reading Scripture all this time, where it all makes sense to me, or it really comes together in a remarkable way, when um, the atonement is not limited. But when the atonement is limited, I couldn't get—I can't—I can't get those inclusive texts to fit into the exclusive texts, and the inclusive texts come at critical junctures in Scripture where the meaning of the book uh, turns or is concluded, um, or they sum up the, the big picture. So, um, but I think that's important to, to say is because I think we're trying to do the same thing. Look at the whole thing and say, what is, what is God telling us? How do, how, how do I believe the most scriptures at once? That's, that's the goal.
0: Yeah. And a hundred percent agree with that, that, uh, yeah, if we see scripture contradicting scripture, it's us who are reading it wrong, right? Because we believe right, in the right, validity right. of scripture. Totally, yep. Right, and and no denying that we all come in with some sort of paradigm into scripture. Like, we all have some sort of lens. Um, and we're, yeah, we're trying yeah. to eliminate improper lenses and read scripture with the proper lenses, what the author intent. Yeah, and,
2: and God busted my paradigm through scripture and through some experiences and, and other things as well. But, um, but yeah, I love that. That's what... I love that. So, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I would just say, um, you might be familiar, but Arminian attacks against Calvinism, against God's sovereignty, God's choosing of people um, also point to some of the same texts. Because they point to, to texts that say, all men, like in 1 Timothy 2, that says, all men are redeemed, and we should pray for all types of men. Um, right. They point to it and say, see, all, all men are redeemable, and just some come to God. Um, And the typical Calvinist rebuke, so I'm going to give this to you because how do you respond to this? Typical Calvinist rebuke of that Armenian attack in 1 Timothy 2, for example, is that when Paul says, pray for all men, um, he does not mean all men individually. He means all kinds of men, rulers, kings, and he goes on to say, you know, pray for those in higher authority and whatever else. Would you take that same approach?
1: To kind of go with that, like Revelation 5 verse 9 um, says that... um... Jesus has redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So. Right. So okay, so um Yeah, I wrote a hundred and forty page paper for my denomination. So let me tell you a little my history. These were the questions I was asking. I was a pastor of really the fastest growing church in our denomination and had famous authors, people as part of my uh, part of my congregation. And some people started stressing that I was saying that all people might really be saved. And they put me on trial, and I had to, if I wanted to keep my church and everything, I had to confess that God didn't want to save all, and God wasn't able to save all, which is crazy, because I don't even know anybody that could do both of those things. But in the process, I wrote like 148 page paper on does all mean all looking at all these scriptures centered around that very question of how on earth could all not mean all when you look at like first corinthians 15 it talks about um as in adam all die so in christ will all be made alive or uh colossians 1 paul uh talks about god um reconciling all things in christ jesus just after he's used all in a sequence all the way through so all is a word, I mean, all, all in Greek is very much like an English word all. So you might say all, but the context would mean, well, I don't really mean all, or I mean all of a particular type. Mm-hmm. But when I read scripture, that was my problem. Every time, well, not every time. There are certain places where you, you know, where it says like all of uh, Judea went out to John the Baptist or whatever. I can't remember the details and go, well, yeah, obviously. I, I mean, I, you know, I can, I can use the word all like that too, but when you use it in a very precise theological way, and it's used in parallel, I just I lost my ability to use that argument. So I don't know of any place in Scripture where it says, uh, you know, it says they're of every tribe, that's true, but it doesn't mean that in the end they don't get every tribe. In fact, Revelation goes on to say that they will. The kings of the earth come into the New Jerusalem. The gates are always open. These are the same kings that were destroyed. And then you get to the toward the end of the Revelation, and the voice from this throne says, Look, I make all things new. Uh, write this down. These words are faithful and true. And I'm supposed to say, he's saying, Look, I make some things new? When, when he talks about a new heaven and a new earth, and then I know people will have... You could we get into the Revelation too because I wrote we, a book. It's on actually that. our second point. Yeah, about making yeah. all
0: things new. So maybe, right. maybe um, we could we could talk
2: about Revelation too. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I I think all just means all, and there are certain places where it can't mean anything but all because it's in parallel. And if you and if you take if you say all means some things, like I people have debated this with me. But if you go to Colossians, uh, chapter. Chapter one. Or actually, people won't debate me in this. Some people have wanted to debate me, and I've and I've said to them, "Okay, um, take take for instance Colossians uh, one 15, through 20. Let me just read this to you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Does that mean some creation? No, it means all creation. For by him all things were created. Some things? No, all things. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority, all things, not some things, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Like, is he... That's not some things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, which I think is all again, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased will, not some of the fullness, and through him to reconcile to himself some things? No, it says all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So to, to make all means some. In a, a scripture like that, is just incredibly hard to do. It may mean some other places, depending on context, but mm-hmm. well, let me but I, you, I I couldn't I couldn't explain it away.
0: Let me ask you a question, then, guess, Peter. Um, yeah. Okay. It, when so in First Timothy, for example, where he says, you know, "Pray for all men." Um, uh uh-huh. If he were, if Paul, God through Paul, was trying to talk about a a limited set of all so all kinds of men, how would you? want him to have said it? Do you think it's illegitimate to say pray for all men when he means kinds of men, rulers and kings and peasants and whoever else?
2: Well, I I guess I'm I'm not totally sure I understand your question. If Paul was going to say pray for some people, he would say, yeah, pray for believers. Pray for those that will be... Um, chosen out of the non-believers well, or something so
0: in this case he is not saying that that would be a separate question it would be a separate right statement. right he is so saying are you pray asking for all types of men so how how would you like him to say all types of men would you want the clear well, type or,
2: i think he's saying pray for all men it, why do you think he's not saying pray for all men well, what, what's saying, the verse yeah, that you're looking at
0: first timothy chapter two um one and, and on in context here's paul talking about praying for rulers and kings and making sure you're not neglecting kings of course are persecuting christians so you'd be tempted not to pray for these people who are evil and are killing your family members or yourself Uh, but he's saying pray for all types of men yeah well he says right here
2: this is goodness pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth so why wouldn't you pray for those all those people well i guess i I, I, i don't understand what yeah. I'm, I, so, in other words, he doesn't say all types. He says all.
0: Yeah, would you? Would you? When you see all that way, are you looking for a signifier to um, to mean types, or are you assuming that all means all men, even well, if in context? In this case, we think it means. Well, um, you backwards. you
2: just you you yourself, Michael, keep adding the signifier. The signifier is not in the text. You add the signifier, which is types. He doesn't say all types. He just says, and from the context. He goes, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. This is the ESV. I don't know what it says. Be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. we, And you got to remember, they're being persecuted by kings and people mm-hmm. in high positions. So like in the Revelation, it will talk about—I um, love the way the Bible throws in uh, all and every in these places. It talks about Jesus, the Word of God writing out and cutting the flesh— from the kings and the rulers of the world, and then it says, and all men. So all, that, that means me, that means you, that means all of us are gonna get our flesh cut off by, by the word, and, and that, I think that's the way the New Testament talks, and Paul talks that way. So Paul will, Paul is if Paul is worried about getting some people into hell, or that there are some people that are not gonna be redeemed, He's incredibly sloppy with his language throughout all of his letters. In yeah. fact, Paul never even uses the word hell.
0: And well, hell is an English word as well. I, I think that— Well, he doesn't
2: use any of the Greek words that are translated hell.
0: Uh, I mean, Hades, right? But hell is He doesn't is use Hades. Translated... He doesn't use
2: Hades. He doesn't use Gehenna. He doesn't use Tartarus. He doesn't use any of them.
0: Uh, just Second Peter and everything? Okay. Um, yeah, so
2: second, and Second Peter then talks about Jesus descending into that place and leading all the, leading captives free.
0: Right, and, and Paul talks about and- J-
2: Jesus descending into the depths of the earth and leading captives free, mm-hmm. but yeah, he just doesn't use that word. Jesus is the one that uses the word more than anybody, which is fascinating, because then you have to ask, who's he talking about ending up there, and what does he mean by this word? So... It, To even bring up the English word hell, you have to stop and say, well, what are we talking about? Because uh, in the Revelation, death and Hades, which translated death and hell, get thrown into the lake of fire and death is no more. Um, Which sounds to me like it's saying, well, Hades, this place of outer darkness, gets thrown into this consuming fire and death is no more. And that's uh, right when he says, behold, I make all things new. So the old paradigm that I think most American Christians have, that hell is this place of endless conscious torment, I just can't get it to work with Scripture at all. Uh, I mean, it just... it uh, And I don't know of any place that requires it. I, I think our judgments require it, because we have a limited understanding of God's capabilities. So we think that if God destroys something or annihilates something... He can't make it new but all of scripture is screaming i'm the creator i i made you from dust in the beginning if i reduce you to dust once again i can remake you if i want to remake you
0: i, I don't deny that god can do whatever he wants and we want to make sure we understand what god is actually doing not just what we want him to do um i two cents yeah and i'm
2: and i'm and i'm saying I, scripture tells I think he's telling us what he's doing. He's saying, look, I make all things new.
0: Yeah, I'll say a much easier message to sell to the pagan to say that you will one day be redeemed, even if you never do. Um, I don't know why the church would have changed it otherwise. I don't think it's a natural human inclination to make a harder message than an easier one. But we want to hold to what scripture says. Oh, I I totally do. I totally do. And
2: I'll explain it to you if you want. (laughs) Um, And, And that is, well, look at what's happening. The... For the first 500 years of the church, Christians are persecuted people. If you confess Christ, there's a good chance that you're going to lose your head or get lose your job, get killed. And you're not saying that people don't need Jesus, you're saying people can still end up in the outer darkness weeping and gnashing their teeth, just like Jesus said. You're just saying that ultimately everyone has to surrender to this new king. Well, if you're the old king, you want control over the people, and if you run the religious institution, you want to wield power. So the the biggest the the biggest power tool in a preacher's arsenal is to get to the end of his sermon and say, "Look, if you don't give your money to the church, or if you don't sign up for the church retreat, or you don't give to the building fund, you know it might just be too late. You could you could lose your chance, and you could end up and there's no and there's no there's no chance for redemption once you go to this place. So I think hell is an incredibly useful tool for religious inst religious institutions. And um I think that in a way explains the violent reaction that I encountered being the pastor of one of the largest churches in my denomination that was growing at this crazy crazy rate because I because I threatened I threatened the big stick that I think as evangelicals, we sometimes hold behind our back, which I don't think is the judgment of God. I think it's it's our judgment.
0: Well, I, I will say, historically, I don't think you're entirely correct as far as the origins of, of pressures on Christian theology, because, and, and I only say this because Sebastian is really into Eastern Christianity, Christianity that went outside of the Roman Empire before it became official in Rome. Um, that went to Persia, I went to China, I went to um, like Oxidonia and India and those same Christian traditions also have a pretty traditional view of hell um, where well
2: but I but I'm problems. saying I am Rome I'm an evangelical pastor I mean I was pastor in a church with several million dollar budget a few thousand people mm-hmm. um, what is the way that I can get people to join my group well the easy you know this as a as a as a person. The easiest way to get people to join your group is to define someone as bad, the people in your group as good, and then having clear markers for how you can be in your group and not their group It's to find a scapegoat. The shocking news of the Gospel is that Jesus comes along and says, well, well I'm the scapegoat, I'm the atonement, I'm, I'm going to take the place of the last and the least. So the last and the least will be first and the best, and I am the last and the servant of all. Uh, so, so I I do think that there is a there is a big hell is a huge incentive. Um, I mean, just watch political campaigns today. Every every candidate is going to tell you why, if you join their group, you're going to be saved, and if you don't join their group, you're going to be damned in some one way or another. And if your your biggest threat is, um, well, endless endless conscious torment with no reprieve. Um, yeah, that's attractive. Uh, <laughs> that's attractive uh, to uh, power structures. I'll,
0: I'll let the, the viewer decide which one is more attractive, uh, universalism or hell. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it is particularly attractive, especially in today's offering. But anyways, that's not really a scripture argument. That's just a straight up uh, political or philosophical yeah. argument. Theodore, I'm totally derailing your design, so I apologize. Right.
1: So, what I was going to say 10 minutes ago <laughs> yeah. is what does scripture say? And I mean, for time's sake, I'll skip over the Second Corinthians 5 thing and we'll go right to the making all things new because okay. Revelation was yeah. mentioned. So, um, yeah, just, sorry.
2: Hey, oh, no, that's, that's how, that's how just...
0: conversations evolve, Peter. So, <laughs> we're both okay.
1: you, you guys are going well. <laughs> um, so, then uh, Revelation 21. 4 to 5 says, behold, I'm making all things new. Um, but then I as I keep reading, um, a verse or two later, it says, he who overcomes will inherit these things. But for the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their part will be in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the idea that the second death brings them to life seems opposite. To me and then it mentions that only those who overcome inherit these things and those who overcome are those who have been born of god been born uh been ransomed or purchased by the blood of the lamb um yeah
2: yeah yeah but so that those are a bunch of great great questions so uh, let's see if I can try to remember them. And by the way, we right before we preach through Romans, we preach all the way through Revelation. And really, the thing that got me in trouble was I, I. And they they sold the book at Barnes and Noble's places like that. I published a commentary on the Revelation. And uh, by the time I got to the end, and I got to behold and make all things new, I said to everybody, I have lost my ability to explain this away. I, I think he he really means it but when you get to the question of the overcomers it's really fascinating and i think that the same john that had the apocalypse is the john that wrote the gospel of john and first john and you remember that the whole that the revelation starts out with this fascinating with all these series of seven which harken back to the seven days of creation and the question that and and this is interesting too the, the letter is to be sent to these the angels of these seven churches or the spirits of these seven churches and the thing that we're supposed to pay attention to is the vision but the question for the spirits of the seven churches is are you going to conquer and then and then throughout the revelation who who is it that conquers and then we find out oh it's this slaughtered lamb standing on the throne of God that conquers and then in first john John writes this is the victory that conquers the world our faith. So faith in us is somehow the Spirit of Jesus within us, and of course on the cross Jesus lifts his head and all the Gospels record this. He surrenders his Spirit, that he delivers up his Spirit and then the Spirit falls on the Church and the Church is dramatically transformed. So I would argue that the one who conquers is the one who is inhabited by Jesus. So there is something in me that Gets lost, and it's what I call mises. It's the belief that I am my own salvation, or, or my my flesh, the old man. Paul talks a lot about the old man. It's my ego. It's that part of me that believes I am my own redemption. Now, what Paul in First Corinthians 15 talks about as the as the psychicos body, the psychic body. So, and my body is even a picture of that, right? I go around consuming life and. Pooping death, to put it bluntly, building this old body, and this old body uh, has to be transformed into uh, pneumaticos body. And not only that, I'm already dead in my trespasses and sins. So what could the second death be? Well, if I'm already dead, what's the death of death? The end of death? It's life and. The Revelation is so fascinating because all these images from all the Scripture come together. Over and over, gosh, this is a fascinating thing to do. Just look up the word fire, if you have Bible software, and then read all the places about fire in Scripture. And you'll find that the fire belongs to God. God is a consuming fire. The fire comes out of His mouth. It falls down on the earth, and it judges things. It reduces things to ashes. But the fire is not... The, the fire is the very substance of God so God is consuming fire God is love and God is one what does that tell us that love is fire which is exactly what the song of which is what the song of the Solomon says the the very flame of the Lord so the people that stand at that get thrown into that lake of fire um, I think they are dead and and somehow all of us have to do business with the fire so You remember that when the disciples on Pentecost, there are tongues of fire that come down from heaven, and they're filled. They're filled. That's the new temple. They're filled with fire. And you remember in the Old Testament, the temple's filled with fire. The tabernacle's filled with fire. Uh, Zechariah prophesied that uh, the church, uh, that the the New Jerusalem, that, that God would be a wall of fire around her and the glory in her midst. So... I can either come to the fire and surrender to the fire now, the grace of God, which I would argue it's the grace of God, is the mercy that's on the atonement seat, or I will have to come face to face with it in the end. And um, I should mention this: I th- in Scripture, I think there are well, there are three different concepts that we think of as hell and two of them are really the exact opposite of each other and yet we use one word to describe them both and the other is the place they meet so scripture talks about hades or sheol Mm -hmm. as this place of separation from god in the outer darkness so people run away from the fire and they hide in sheol and yet even in sheol the fire comes up and they can't ultimately escape from the fire but it's the opposite of the fire and then the fire is this is is theon in Greek, and it gets translated as sulfur or brimstone, but you can hear it right in the Greek word. It's it's like um, theon is also an adjective meaning divinity. So it comes from the word theos, and the idea is, yeah, the fire comes right out of God. It's the very substance of God. So if I'm in opposition to God, the last thing I want to do is be in the very presence of God. So I hide in the outer darkness. But I think that's what that lake of fire is, which is the, the, second, the second death, uh, the then, death of death. And then the place they meet, the Bible uses different terms, but I think that's judgment. And Gehenna is a picture of that, the, the valley at the edge of Jerusalem, which becomes the new Jerusalem. So I, I, I'm, I'm saying a ton of stuff there, Theodore, so go ahead. And
1: I have something related to that. So you yeah. mentioned the second death, and I actually, I had a quote from your book. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wrote uh, the second death is the death of the soul, uh, the psyche, the old Adam, my pride, the me that I think I have created, my false self, a believer dies the second death before the body dies, end quote. Um, and then, but uh, Revelation 2 verse 11 says, he who he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And then Revelation 20 verse 6 uh, says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But then, most intriguing to me is Jude 1 verse 12, or just verse 12. I don't know how you say it, since there's only one chapter, kind of. Um, and that says, "These are the ones who are hidden reefs in your feasts, when they feast with you without fear, like shepherds caring only for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds." Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. So uh how I guess how do you reconcile that like doubly dead while yet they're still living?
2: Yeah, I'd have to look at that in the, the Greek. Let me what say again what verse that is, Jude, Jude twelve.
1: Yeah. Jude one verse twelve.
2: These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead, uh, uprooted. Yeah, I think he's he's probably saying Yeah, maybe he's using a little different there, but they're maybe they're physically dead and spiritually dead. Um I mean I we, if you, Yeah. If you
1: wanna to respond to this one with it, like Matthew ten, twenty eight, that's one that I have.
2: Kind yeah, of memorized.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, like fear not, who can kill the body, but fear God, who can kill both body and soul in hell or Gehenna, or right? Which it says, but
2: we well, yeah. So that's exactly said, what I'm saying. In fact, that that verse I've preached on a lot. Jude 12. I never really studied, but uh, yeah, fear God, who can kill both body and soul in hell. Um, he, and I think the word is Gehenna, right? So that's what I'm saying. We all have to. Jesus said it this way. Um. You must lose your life for my sake in the kingdom in order to find it. The Greek word that he uses there is not the normal word for well, it's. It gets its psyche. So, Zoe is one Greek word for life that's indestructible mm-hmm. life. Psyche is the the word soul. Unless I lose my soul, I can't find it. And if I don't lose it, if I don't surrender my soul to Jesus at the cross, well, it will be required of me one day. But that's same for everyone. So there's there's a a, p- a pleasant, more pleasant, wonderful way that I surrender my life at the cross and choose to die with Jesus and rise with Jesus. Or if I hang on to my psyche, I can get trapped in my psyche in the outer darkness. So, um, but either way, that place of outer darkness comes to an end because the revelation says it does. It comes to an end in the lake of fire. So I. I don't know if that answers your... Does that answer your question about the... Was it Matthew 12?
0: Matthew 10. Uh, Matthew 10, yeah. Yeah. I suppose I I think it warrants just a summary of how far we've come in the conversation just because we're about maybe the halfway point. Um, First point we established, Peter, is that you believe in in the redemption of all things, and you make that apparent through several scriptures that talk about the redemption of all people, all things, all men. Um, You believe that God is not... um, He's not splitting the righteous from the unrighteous. He's making all righteous, um, whether that's immediately, like you're suggesting now, and that some come into the kingdom immediately, and some go through some purging process, some purgatory, not really in the Catholic sense, but some sort of purging process. Um, that yeah, then right. Then come out righteous. Uh-huh. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so we've hit number one, was he's redeeming all things. And number two is that he's making all things new. So not only is God's ultimate plan to make everybody come to him, but two, He's making all things new. And I'll just contrast that to, to my position, to American Christianity, whatever you'd like to call it, would say that when God says he's He's restoring all, kind, or all men, it would be all kinds of men, his men, all men, all, all elect men, and that he strongly contrasts the righteous from the unrighteous, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where he says, I'm separating the sheep from the goats. And again, in American Christianity, my Christianity would say that... Um, when he says, I'm making all things new in Revelation, he's making all categories of things new. He's making the earth new. He's making yeah. the heavens new. He's giving us new bodies. Um, but even in the same book, Revelation, it contrasts those who are inheriting eternal life and those who are inheriting eternal death. So Theodore quoted it, and you, you talked about it here, but that, that section that's repeated in Revelation. Well, yeah, I don't
2: to- know where it says they. when you say they inherit eternal death. What, what verse are you thinking of?
0: Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Matthew 23 this, you one of you guys have this classic Matthew, Jesus parable it, where are he's, you
1: thinking of the Matthew 25 41 and then 46 which is thank you, like man. those will go uh, the righteous will go on to eternal life and the unrighteous will go on to eternal punishment it's, it's the sheep like and the goats
0: parable where Jesus yeah
2: yeah Jeopardy. that's one of my i just totally love matthew 25 so i we could talk about that for hours right now but let me just say this real, real quick yeah we could go we, we go, go down that path but uh, michael is that i would say that the more I studied scripture, the more I realize, oh, the division between good and evil runs right through my heart. It doesn't run between this group of people and that group of people. So like when you sep like separating the wheat from the chaff, um, the chaff is that outer casing around the wheat. And God even in the Old Testament talks about sifting people one one by one. So I have to lose something, the chaff in me Um, to release the wheat in me. The sheep and the goats is utterly fascinating because when you get into that story, um, they both both go into the same fire. And he says he'll separate the sheep and the goats the way a shepherd separates his sheep and his goats. Um, And he does that by... I've been over to Israel, and the shepherds just walk around, and the sheep follow him. The goats he has to drive with a stick. And they were standing in front of the in front of the temple. And he had just said to them on that day, um, many will say to me, you know, when did I see you hungry or thirsty, sick and in prison? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And others will, and, and, and yet others, well, he doesn't say knew you there, but, uh, but they're the goats. And then other people, um, you did visit me when I was sick and in prison, and they're the sheep. And so I, we did this in church. I, I prepared a judgment sheet. I said, look, jesus spelled it out for us really quick easy here who among you has ever visited someone in the hospital if you'd stand up and i go well jesus says your sheep now who among you has not visited someone in the hospital everybody stood up and says well jesus says your goat so see, the problem is you need to be cut in two you need to be judged when jesus told that story he was standing right in front of the temple three days before his death on the cross And the next chapter says that. And of course, the chapter divisions are added later. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb can be taken from the sheep or the goats. And so I think when I read read Jesus carefully, he's saying to me, yeah, you've got a part that follows me because you love me, and you have a part that has to be driven by me and that that part that's driven by me is going to be taken care of with a sin offering and you know in the old testament they're constantly offering sheep and goats and the goats were usually the sin offering the sheep were often the burnt offering that's just the gift that's offered up to to god remember both sheep and goats go into the same fire um... but but for goats is a very painful experience For, for sheep it's a it's a different sort of experience it's following Following the voice of the master. So what? So sorry, I'm getting into details there, into the weeds. But what I'm saying is that, yeah, I think when you read, when you really wrestle with scripture, um, honestly, Jesus drives us back to the place that hey, there's wheat and chaff in you, and and hey, there's um wheat, there's wheat and tares in you. There's a false wheat, and then there's a true wheat, and there's sheep and goats. And so the judgment then, is that is that judgment that cuts between the parts of me
0: yeah and and i think and we'll save it for a different section only because we're trying to establish your position i'm sorry we keep interjecting with with ours because uh, just comes natural in this kind of conversation but yeah I, there is a natural response to that it's interesting you keep using the wheat and the tares parable because i think that speaks to my problem with splitting a person um but let's save it for <laughs> the the section that's where sorry. we give you that's okay that's okay yeah
1: well, well, michael if so you could use, like, other parables, too. Like, there's the wheat and the chaff, but then you also have the parables where Jesus says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, like every every whole tree. Um, and then there are, uh, oh, what's this? Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew up on the beach and... They drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers but the bad fish they just threw away um so it will be at the end of the age the uh, angels will come forth and take out of the take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth
0: which yeah i'll right. point out just as another Ali uh, Ali here um I would not hold to thinking that Hades or the current death Sheol is outer darkness. We would ascribe outer darkness to the final destination, the second death, the traditional Gehenna hell, you know, classic hell definition. That's that's what we would call the outer darkness. Um so Well
2: the, the the problem is when you get to the to the word Hades, it in the Septuagint it translates the the Hebrew word Sheol. And the word yeah, Sheol yeah. shows up throughout all of the old testament and <laughs> hades then tapped into fully to, but
0: fully agree that hades yeah. is sheol uh, interchangeable and that's yeah. why you already quoted it here in the very end of revelation it says that death and hades are thrown into Gehenna. yeah so we believe that sheol is is done and that now the only two positions you can have are either in gahanna and hell or in in the heavenly kingdom
2: right so so if we get into individual scriptures that's fine but it's back to that big overarching questions. So, when you talk about dragnets and parables of the kingdom, the more I've preached and the more I've wrestled with them, I'm like, oh, gosh, these are not saying what I thought that they said. But then there are some very clear texts where, uh, you know, Jesus, and Jesus even says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. And particularly in John, he says some things very clearly. And then, uh, especially Paul and the prophets. Gosh, the prophets are amazing as well. I, those texts are very clear, um, but, uh, but the parable about the dragnet and the things he drags out of the sea and what they are, well, that's a little more vague. And so I have to ask, does the, does, does the vague text explain away the clear text or which is the clear text? And then how do I understand the others in light of that text? So,
1: um,
2: I mean, I, I, yeah, go ahead
1: we get into those prophets too because i found some interesting verses that i'd also like your uh, commentary uh this on. is yeah. so we, yeah. sp-
0: we split your positive uh things into three this is the third one theater's keeping us on track so number yeah. three yeah. <laughs> of your okay position positive
1: points yeah okay so um so ezekiel 16 and 37 um, uh-huh. i forget exactly what they say in their entirety but uh dry bones coming to life and such
2: yeah yeah well Ezekiel sixteen is he talks about how um, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, and then the punishment upon Jerusalem is that they're going to be restored along with Sodom and Gomor well Sodom and Samaria so her Jerusalem's older sister and Jerusalem's younger sister
1: okay and then, and then ezekiel
2: thirty seven is the whole house of Israel all the bones of Israel
1: okay um, so I got, uh, let's see, Micah 7, verse 10, Malachi 4, 1 to 2, Isaiah 1, 27 to 28. Should I
2: just, like, read my little uh, you quote? You gave him from a lot of
0: scripture there. How about you? One? Yeah.
1: Cool. Why yeah why so, I
2: mean, if, like, you, <laughs> yeah, if you want to talk about individual scriptures, but I, you know, I don't know if I'm ready. Oh, okay. So, but, uh, well, I mean, no, that's fine. I, I just sometimes need some time to go back and look at them.
1: Yes. Yeah, so would sure. I. Sure okay yeah um okay i'll just read them then
2: yeah that's fine
1: <laughs> okay uh micah 7 to or micah 7 verse 10 says israel's enemy will be like mire in the streets and verse 18 specifies that god will pardon not everyone but only the rent uh the remnant as mm-hmm. in romans 11 verse 4 uh when paul remembers god saving the seven thousand who did not bow to baal
2: right um, yeah
1: and then Uh, Malachi 4, verses 1 to 2, declares every evildoer will be chaff, left with neither root nor branch, but in contrast, only those who fear God will be saved. Mm -hmm. And the last one, Isaiah 1, verses 27 to 28, prophesies Zion will be redeemed, but not the sinners and transgressors who forsake the Lord. They shall be crushed and come to an end.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so with... um... Gosh, so you just read a whole bunch of verses. Art, yeah. So you could, you could go back and you could go back and read a whole bunch of verses from those very books. But the first thing you have to ask when you're reading the Old Testament is, save from what? So what? What are? What is a particular situation that we've talked to, and then where does that transfer to something bigger? So God is always working out His judgment and His salvation. In, in ways, particularly in the Old Testament, that they're not thinking eternal bliss or eternal conscious torment, and, and neither of those. Uh, and yet, in other places, he is. So, the book of Isaiah, I just absolutely love. And so, let me give you. So, Isaiah, what was it Isaiah 1 used? Isaiah 1 28, yeah yeah. And what what did he say in Isaiah 1? Zion yeah. will be redeemed,
0: but the sinners and transgressors who forsake the Lord, they shall be crushed and come to an end.
2: Yeah, yeah. So if you go on with, so this is wild, but if you go on with Isaiah, what who is the Messiah numbered with? Do you remember?
1: The transgressors.
2: The transgressors. It's the same word. Now, and then get this. And Isaiah, and you remember Jesus quotes Isaiah all the time. Paul quotes Isaiah all the time. Isaiah has Isaiah has the, the incredible passage. It says, "Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For you know, a, a word has gone out from my mouth. I swear, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess." And he's obviously talking about salvation. And then he has a great passage about, um, "On this mountain, I create, a, you know, I'll make a feast for all peoples, and uh, they'll come from all over the world, all peoples." But the but I think the one that and there's several others like that in Isaiah. Um, and the earth will give birth to the dead. I mean, just amazing passages. But the coolest, I think, is um, when you get to the very end of Isaiah. So you, you read something from the very start. When you get to the end, um, this is the way the book of Isaiah ends. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh, All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies, the corpses of the men who have transgressed. The word is, if you look up the Hebrew word, rebellers or the transgressors, uh, who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. If I take that scripture very literally, it's a picture of all humanity, walking out of the new jerusalem looking on the corpses of all humanity including the messiah's corpse because remember he's numbered with the transgressors and they're praising god because these old bodies of sin and death are being consumed by eternal fire and they're liberated as the new jerusalem so and that's not just that last verse that's all of isaiah if you go back and read isaiah what messes up i think western readers is over and over again, in Isaiah, God will say, look, I'm devoting, and he uses the Hebrew word harem, it's the same word that's used for you know, Jericho and the Canaanites, I'm devoting my people to destruction, and there's a remnant in Isaiah, but you read Isaiah closely, like chapter 7, Paul really gets into Isaiah in Romans, it talks about the righteous remnant, it talks about the root of Jesse. And Isaiah is to go out and he's to preach Israel down to this stump that becomes a root. And then, lo and behold, through the root, all these people are saved. Now, everything that I'm saying here is familiar to Calvinists. It's just they say, well, yeah, but that's only true for some of the people. Well, if you read Isaiah honestly, everybody gets destroyed and burned up. And then everybody shows up in the New Jerusalem. At least that's the only way I can... I'd, yeah, I could.
0: I'd, I'd love to press, just so it doesn't get lost, Peter, because I think it's another distinctive of yours. You said mm-hmm. that uh, at the end of Isaiah, it's just all flesh, everybody looking at all flesh, including Jesus's. Can you break that down? Can you specify what do you mean by that? Yeah, like the Lord's Yeah. So didn't... so
2: okay. So th- let's talk about atonement for for a minute. There, there's this theme throughout the Old Testament that I think we've just utterly lost in the West with our individualism, and, and that's. The, well, the idea of what the Adam is. So, Adam in Hebrew, you know, becomes a is a man's name, but mm-hmm. Adam shows up throughout the Old Testament referring to humanity. Mm-hmm. So, there's a there's a new humanity and there's an old humanity. And so, when Jesus, I think the I think Jesus' death and resurrection is so important. For like Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That somehow all of our all of our broken flesh all of our sin jesus takes on himself and he helps us die to this old self but he's also the new self that rises from us so i think we've said we've wrongly said in the western evangelical church that basically jesus died on the cross so you don't have to um, he died for you, so you don't have to go through that. I think what Paul is saying is, no, Jesus came to come die with you to help you lose your life and find it in Him. And you know, Paul says that unless we're joined with Him in a death like, if we're joined with Him in a death like His, surely we'll be joined with Him in a resurrection like His. So if the Messiah's body is in Gehenna, I go, yeah, that. Jesus has identified himself with us He's taken on our sin and sorrow and he's suffering um, that punishment He's suffering my punishment but all of humanity's punishment and it's not that I don't have to lose this old body of sin and death this selfishness I still do but Jesus Jesus helps me do it and then he's also the new man and th- now this is where this is where the, the Christian Universalism or whatever you call it makes a whole lot of sense that we are saved in adam so and when you pay close attention to paul and romans um and he says you know and and in corinthians as in adam all die so in christ will all be made alive um he's t- and he talks about the second adam or the eschatos adam well the eschatos the new adam is the new humanity and it's not like jesus loses part of that humanity but he loses the flesh of all of us which is then Becomes his life. and the the, the early church fathers talked that I learned from talking to a historian that I interviewed. and I think this is I think this is the view of scripture that evil or this what well, well, and Paul uses Paul speaks of this old man as the tupos, or the, the 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 word in Greek is like if i took if I took my fist and I punched some clay, it would leave an imprint. And he, he says that this old self is like an imprint. It's like an empty space waiting to be filled with Jesus. It's an imprint of, of Jesus. And so when, when Jesus deals with sin, um, sin is like an emptiness. It's an absence of the good. And Jesus is the presence of the good that fills that emptiness in me and you and all of us. And the thing that was missing from Adam in the garden was faith, it was trust in the Word of God, and Jesus is the one that gives us faith. He is literally faith, hope and love. He bleeds his life into each one of us. so I'm saved by the blood in the same way that a severed body part that has no blood in it is saved by the blood. and then that brings all the parts together in this new man that is the new humanity, um, which is which I believe Paul is is saying in the new text and, and the scriptures picturing, that that yeah, new yeah. that new body is the new Jerusalem is the new humanity
0: okay uh, and it just uh, viewers like you to know I think that's a really important part of, of Peter's theology or not just Peter's course. But when I say you Peter I just yeah. mean you're representing your view it's not just you um, is I, maybe I ask a really pointed question would you ascribe to penal substitutionary atonement or is not it's not the way you viewed Christ's atonement?
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating, fascinating question. And the the immediate answer is that for a long time I said yes, but really struggled, and now I say no, and and this is why. But you have to be very exact. So penal substitutionary atonement is a really—first of all, let me say, I was fascinated in seminary to learn that there were all sorts of theories of the atonement, and mm-hmm. that— and we discussed them on and the, the podcast, the actually. Penal, huh? Yeah, the the penal substitution is a relatively recent one, at least in this form. The thing that really, and and just for your listeners who are listening, there are all sorts of different theories about what was going on on the cross, but penal substitution atonement says that justice has to be satisfied by a punishment, and that uh, Jesus became a substitute in the punishment. So because God took out his wrath on on Jesus and punished Jesus, he's not going to punish me. The problem that I have with that, that I've always had with it, is it just sounds kind of bizarre. Like, if I, it would be like saying, you know, my my son Coleman crashed the truck, so I killed his brother John, and now I feel good about Coleman. Well, that, that doesn't make much sense. Uh, and, but it, biblically, there are some big problems with it, and I think maybe the most, is that in ezekiel particularly in a few other places god makes it very clear there are no penal substitutes but there is a substitute um and this the substitute is that well jesus can do what i can't do and what is it that i can't do i can't love the lord my god in freedom I, i don't i i try the law reveals and this is what paul is saying the law reveals that Peter does not love love. It's not in my fallen, this this broken flesh is somehow trapped within itself. But Jesus is the very presence. He's the righteousness of God. He's that. He's the righteousness that's imputed to me, not just in a book, somewhere on a shelf, but imputed to me right now. So whatever faith, hope, and love that I have, every good decision in me is somehow... Uh, a gift to me from God through Jesus the Christ. So penal substitution, the problem isn't that there's a substitution, and the problem isn't that there's... is the word punishment is a fascinating word, because as I look at it in Scripture, it usually means something more like discipline. And I will go, yeah, that makes total sense to me as a dad if one of my kids needs discipline, it's not because I need to be paid back, particularly when they're little, you know, I've got more than enough money to pay for the window or whatever it is that they they broke. What I care about is that they're disciplined, and I can't, and, and Scripture says that we've all participated in discipline, and we have to participate in discipline to be saved. So, Jesus isn't, Jesus is the one who helps me with the discipline and gives me the good choice which is uh righteousness. So I I think that's a penal substitutionary atonement appeals to um kind of the wrong things in in us. Uh and and I but but then people will say, Well why does the death and resurrection of Jesus matter? And I want to say, well it's the only thing that matters. It's the definition of love. It's God pouring himself into this empty universe and creating all things. Mm-hmm and the most amazing thing that he creates is people in his image who share his own who share his own judgment so the atonement is objective in the sense that it happens outside of me and yet it's subjective in the sense that it happens in even in the sanctuary of my own heart so that i die and i rise with jesus and i'm i'm saying that ultimately we all do because jesus is going to destroy the works of the devil like he said but when he does, the lies, the illusions, the false self, the chaff, um, that, will all be, that will all be transformed, burned away and transformed, and filled with him, because he's going to fill all things. Paul's, Paul concludes so many of his letters that way, right? He says he, 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 um, he, he's all in all, and he fills all things through Christ Jesus.
0: I am very happy we had this this first half or first two thirds whatever to elucidate position, Peter. Because I think you've you've made it clear. Sometimes people come on and they've got um, unique views that, that they zoom all over scripture for, and it doesn't really make much sense. You've done a little bit of like zooming all over scripture, but you kind of have to. But I think you've made clear points. One, um, you you don't have the traditional view of of atonement. It's a different view. It, it's not unheard of. Like you're you're. It sounds like you're doing. Um, I should ask you, how would you? Well,
2: oh, let me just say, it? I, it's the it's the recapitulation yeah, theory. so, it like so the... it, 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 Irenaeus was the one, and this this was fascinating to me. It, this comes from Ephesians, 1:10. Uh, um, and let me just, can I just read it real quick? Right Is ahead. that okay? So, Never going to stop. Yeah. Me from so the 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 word it's called the recapitulation theory because it not because Irenaeus in the second century called it that. Um, but because trans- the, the, the Greek word is anacaphaliososthe, and it gets translated into Latin as recapitulato, or something like that. But it transfers, and then it gets transferred into English, this kills me, with this one little word, unite. But this one little word, unite, is so fascinating. Um, he talks about his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So there's a big statement to unite all things in him, things in heaven on earth. That word unite is the word anakephalio, which is, in Greek, you know, they put together all these other words, and kefe is is head, mm-hmm. and so it literally means to bring everything together under one head, under like one wounded head, in fact. So I think that, I think maybe the best picture of the atonement, my favorite description of the recapitulation theory of the atonement, which I think is just what paul says right there in ephesians 110 is the movie the iron giant have you ever seen that of course that movie mm-hmm. yeah i just i when i was get, going through all sorts of trauma with my old denomination and struggling with all these theological principles i i took my kids to see the iron giant and they all freaked out because they looked down at me and i'm just i was just sobbing uncontrollably in the theater because i'm is like oh movie, i yeah. get i get it now but i wasn't i wasn't sobbing at the part where they do on you know ted lasso um i was sobbing (laughs) at the very end when all the parts come together because if you remember the story the iron giant comes down befriends this lonely kid with no father and and the kid loves the iron giant and then the iron giant chooses to sacrifice himself to stop the nuclear warhead and he blows up and the pieces of him fall all over the earth and and uh, they get together and they make a statue of the Iron Giant. Everybody remembers how the Iron Giant saved the world. And I go, yeah, I think that's like that's a, probably a good description of a lot of Christianity now, and it's fine. But the amazing thing is that the government comes and they give one screw from the Iron Giant to Hogarth, remember? And he puts it in a box by his bed, and he dreams of the Iron Giant. And then, um, see, I start crying when I talk about it. Then in the middle of the night, the iron, the Iron Giant... The screw starts wiggling in the box, it starts moving, and I go, well, I think that box is like the human heart, and that screw is like faith, what Paul would describe as faith. And then the screw rolls out of the window, and you see it rolling, and then it pans to, they find the head, and the head is in Greenland, and the head, the eyes, you know, come to, and all these parts from all over the world are coming back to the Iron Giant. But now with these part, there are all these like little boys. There are lovers of the iron giant that are all coming together. And so I think that the picture of the atonement is that, you know, at the cross, God exhibits his heart. Jesus from the bosom of the Father. This is who I am. You all take my life from me. And in the midst of taking my life from me, I'm going to give you my life. And then He and do this in remembrance to me. Take my body, take my blood. Take, take this little bolt from the iron giant and you swallow it. You swallow that into your gut and that thing's going to grow. And you're swallowing it really into... Well, you're swallowing it into a picture of death, I mean, uh, and disobedience, but it grows and brings us all together. And then I'm bound to my neighbor, I'm bound to what who used to be my enemies. All humanity come back together. It's a, like from Luke 15, the older brother, the younger brother, all to this party. And the thing that allows me to enjoy the party is that I've died to my old self. i died to my old selfishness. As it is now in my insecurity and fear, I compete with everybody around me. It's just like in my nature, and it ends up destroying all relationships. But once I come face to face with the grace of God in Christ Jesus, well, then I'm I'm glad if he saves me, if he saves the next person, if he turns the whole thing into one huge party. And I and realize that as an Adam all die, so in Christ all may be made alive and all were consigned to disobedience in order they may have mercy on all. Because the thing that results from that is this gratitude and this communion. And I think that's the atonement.
0: All right, Theodore. I know we're we're running up. We're like an hour and fifteen. Um, I'll yeah, let you decide sorry. if we if we cap the section and go on to our three questions. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Wait, sure. Or... Hey, no. Go <laughs> you you are the man. You want I mean, to do your highlighted text at the end. I mean,
1: do we want to do a part two sometime, where we can do the other three things? Uh, or... We can just
0: split this episode if we really want to go part two, or just make a big mega episode. I think we should keep going.
1: Okay, but Peter, if you need food, <laughs>
2: no, no, I'm I'm good. Go I just it. need chicken strips in the next half hour or so. All
1: right okay all right um so well actually
2: uh, i could li- i have a layer of subcutaneous fat that i could make it on for quite a while <laughs> all right so do i uh. yeah
1: oh my goodness <laughs> fasting and podcasting yeah <laughs> that'll be something new oh um, yeah
2: okay. i feeling very
1: uh three eight to nine uh, another one you'd re- uh referenced says yeah people's given purified lips that all may call on the name of the lord um But then uh, personally reading it, uh, like two verses later in verse 11, uh, it says, I will remove from your midst those who proudly boast, which means Mm -hmm. they they still exist. And then verse 12, I will leave in your midst a humble and meek group of people. And verse 13 concludes it is the Israelites who remain, i.e. the remnant of Israel, who will uh, trust in the Lord and tell no lies and act deceitfully. Mm -hmm. And then... Another one related to, like, the being purified and such, I thought was really interesting was Zechariah 13, uh, verses 8 to 9, um, because I think it uh, covers several points. And that says, And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, Refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And then yes, the chapter at—oh, sorry.
2: So let's say there's too much there to talk about all at once. So take the, the Zechariah one. Um, yeah. I, I believe he's talking about Israel, right? So you've got to ask yourself this question— well, what is the big picture? What's the big story here? Clearly, historically, you know that parts of Israel come under judgment and parts of Israel escape at times. But if Ezekiel's true, that it's the whole house of Israel that comes into the land. And if God said, look, I'm, I'm going to redeem all of Israel in and, and many different places, you have to say, well, how can both of those things be true at once? So if he talks about part of Israel perishing... Well, my Greek is a lot better than my Hebrew, but I mean, I have all the tools to go study it. You have to ask, well, what does that mean to perish? And, you know, in the New Testament, the word for perish that usually gets translated perish is apolumi, which means destroyed Mm -hmm. or lost. And Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. So there are a lot of options there. Like, okay, maybe they're perished and then they're recreated. Maybe they're lost and then they're found. Uh, Maybe they're they're destroy destroyed God make some new but maybe or maybe that's part of the people um i don't know i'd have to get into it but how do i reconcile that with the verses that is going to save all of israel that are also then new testament verses
1: right but then i think of like romans where paul says not all israel is, is israel
2: it's right. Only- which is, man, I wish that I could preach to you now for two years, because I just <laughs> preached. And, and, and I'm totally, I'm totally serious about this. I'd love it if people went to YouTube, looked up the Peter Hyatt channel on YouTube, H-I-E-T-T, and watched the series on Romans, because we spent several weeks talking about not all of Israel is Israel, just in the sense that not all of uh, Jacob is, or, well, that is, not all of Abraham is Abraham, and not all of Isaac is Isaac. So and and as you as you follow Paul's train of thought, it it's not all. It goes right down to this remnant that is a seed that turns out to be Jesus, and fulfilling the original promise to Abraham that you have been blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So it's incredibly uh, dramatic, and I'd have to go back and look at. I mean, there are translation issues. So. The Zephaniah passage in the ESV maybe um, appears a little different. Um, so, but we're talking about too many verses all at once. <laughs> so,
1: right. So, I guess with the remnant of Israel, I'd probably have to listen to more of your messages. But yeah. currently, it sounds to me like like the remnant is the whole human, just like Jesus says. Like he'll throw the fish into the basket. He'll throw the whole tree.
2: Well, no, the uh, remnant left. Well, we'll, well the remnant's Jesus. So it's so the only so what what I'm saying now, just so that we're clear, is not some universalistic thing. This is a Calvinistic thing. So a Calvinist would look back at the Old Testament prophets and Isaiah, and they would talk about the remnant in the same way. So no one is saved by their own works, and no one is righteous until you get to the to the promised seed or to the remnant, which is Jesus, and then um, in Jesus. Then the whole the whole scheme is reversed. Um, I think it was Oscar Kuhlman had this cool picture of the Bible that's like a, an hourglass on its side, and it said, "Look, if you if you be, it begins here in the beginning with all of humanity, and it and it keeps getting whittled down until you come to this crisis point, which is humanity crucifying the old good, only good person that ever lived, and then from that becomes a new twelve, and then a new Israel, and then a new." humanity until God makes, God makes God makes all things new but um so, so I, I guess so did, so did you want to talk about Zephaniah because I'd have to look at those individual verses um the the I guess the verses I don't know how to
1: there's a parallel
2: that, or yeah well no I was looking thinking of you were quoting a verse from Zephaniah too right
1: oh right yeah uh, yeah ethaniah 3 8 to 9 and then yeah. i paired that with uh, zechariah 13 8 to 9
2: right so here here's what mine ESV says in 8 through 9 so tell me where yours is different he says therefore wait for me declares the lord for the day when i rise up to seize the prey so who's the prey my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation all my burning anger for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Then next verse, for at that time, at the time that all the earth is will be consumed, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So there's that parallelism right there that I was just talking about with that hourglass. God saying, I'm going to destroy everyone. I mean, the whole world is going to be judged by fire. And yet out of that, I'm going to give them a new speech. And the new speech is is the very word of God. It's the praises that come from the Messiah.
0: Well, might I ask you, Peter, so on, uh, again, so many verses you could go over, and I don't want to give you just a scattershot of of a million verses. Um, but this, this same verse then, um, when it talks uh. about... Um, the land so in same zephaniah in verse 2 11 so right after this god Mm -hmm. says i will remove from your midst those who proudly boast i will leave in your midst a humble and meek group of people right yeah
2: then i will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones and you shall no longer be and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain did you catch that so you would have to get into the hebrew there but i'm going well who are the proudly exultant ones well that's all the ones he's going to destroy with fire and who are the ones that are no longer going to be that are no longer proud? Well, it's not anybody I know. Not yet. That's something that God has to do through His work of redemption on the, on the cross. So, so here's the scary thing. I mean, I think maybe the scariest verse in all of Scripture is when Jesus says, "Look, the measure you give is the measure you get." So, if I'm if I hold on to, and I don't mean to say this in an accusatory kind of way. So hear me out, because I'm, because I'm very much in Michael. I'm you know, spent half my life in, I think, probably the exact same position as you are. But if I hang on to the idea that a big portion of humanity, or anybody, has to be endlessly tortured, well, if I'm issuing that judgment, that's a little terrifying. And then when I get around to the, the unforgivable sin, and we can get into the text on this one, too, but I think Jesus tells us what the unforgivable sin is, and that's unforgiveness. If I don't forgive, I'm not forgiven. So, I'm, if, if I, what I'm trying to say is, I think we're all proudly exultant ones. And to become a humble one is something God has. If I could do it to myself, then I could be proud of my humility, my humbling myself. God has to do it. And when He does it, I think. The natural response is that I just want to forgive everyone, because when I realize that I'm the chief of sinners, like Paul, and you know, and he says that, well, then I, I'm not interested in anybody being condemned. I am interested in everybody being liberated from their own illusions and their own uh, their own their own darkness. Um,
0: I, I think you are piggybacking off of things that that traditional Christians that I would agree with and things that I would not one of the things I definitely yeah. agree with you Peter is that um, there's no one righteous not one and that's what you're getting at is that we're all at yeah. some point in enmity with God which I hope, you know any Christian will accept right It's part of the gospel is that you first need to be saved um, but the thing I wouldn't agree with and where you know you're distinct on this this viewpoint as well is that I believe in traditional Christianity at least American Christianity would also agree is that a running theme of Scripture is that God is setting apart a particular people separate from other people's particular people uh, in the land in the elect you know in the New Testament the Old Testament he's always showing that even though um, Israel has been you know wholly rebellious that he's setting apart a people that he has made righteous that's separate from the other parts of Israel he's not making all of Israel righteous he's making He's limiting Israel. He's, yeah, he's, and, and
2: the righteousness like is himself, Israel. right? So so Jesus is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and mm-hmm. redemption. That's what Paul says in Cor- Corinthians. And you, you have to ask yourself, well, and I think he's the only righteousness, right? So it's an imputed righteousness. So whatever right thing that I do, it's because Jesus is doing that righteousness even in me. And in the Old Testament, that... that that group of people, that particular group of people, is called the First Fruits. Well, what are the First Fruits? Well, the First Fruits that are anticipating the latter fruit, the the Feast of Tabernacles and the and the in-gathering. And, and who are they? Well, they're the children of Abraham. And what is the promise to Abraham? Well, Abraham, you have been blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And then God says something utterly fascinating. He says, you know, to, him who curses you is cursed, and him who blesses you is blessed. Well, how could that be, except for that somehow Jesus is, is in him, um, that the promised seed is in him? And so Jesus really is the judgment. I can't curse Jesus and not be cursed myself, because I'm cutting myself off from the life. But ultimately, the life is so powerful that it can transform every heart, and the particular people have been called out in order to call all humanity into the kingdom. So they're like the they go out to the highways and the byways and compel people to come in.
0: but you do, when when you take this position that you have. You, mm-hmm. you make make some scripture make more sense uh, in your view, but you make some scripture make absolutely no sense or contrary to to the way God truly operates. Like when John yeah, the Baptist so you have to look- tells the Pharisees, he says, um, "I could don't don't just assume that you are children of Abraham because I could raise up children of Abraham from these stones, right?" Right. So he says, mm-hmm. presumptuously or assumedly here that these suppose the children of Abraham could be cut off and that God could give the promise to whoever he wants and that these would be cut off uh, no longer children.
2: Right and then Paul says and God has the power to graft them back in again and then he concludes by saying God consigned all the disobedience in order they may have mercy on all. Oh the depth of the wisdom and riches knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable ways and then he goes on to say for from him through him and to him are all things so paul paul says look this is what god's doing he's redeeming all humanity he, he, he says he, does it's, not, I he, he doesn't well,
0: say that he says that well, he could he has the power well to from him to
2: him and through him are all things so is someone that's endlessly tortured in hell uh, is that to god no that's someone that's god. cut off from god
0: we just like the end of Isaiah says, well, all view this great judgment of God and say, praise God that he's yeah, we'll at see,
2: Yeah, you'll see the corpses of all humanity burning in the Valley of Gehenna.
0: I mean, I, I disagree. I do not believe that you'll see the corpses of the redeemed. I well, that's, that's what serious. Isaiah
2: 66 says. It says, it says, of it's all, all the, tra- so if you trace the word transgressors back through Isaiah, so do this, if anybody has Bible software, Look up who the transgressors are, who the rebellers are, and you'll end up seeing that it's everyone, including the Messiah, and then all flesh is looking. So so that's another scripture that you can look at in detail um but, but anyway so, so the
0: lord is counted so jesus the messiah coming messiah is counted among the transgressors but he is not himself a transgressor he's he's,
2: he's right he's, he's numbered be, with the transgressors
0: yeah, he's thought to be one but he's not actually one so yeah
2: he who knew no sin so what does this mean he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of god
0: he he took on our sins penal substitutionary atonement isn't it that he took on the sins of his elect and so he himself has not sinned but he takes on their oh, sin. yeah he
2: He's not the sinner, but he bears sin, right?
0: Uh, yes, and then he's raised again, right? He pays the So penalty. he's so
2: when it says he's numbered with the transgressors, it's saying, hey, we counted the transgressors, and he's one of them.
0: Uh, I, I actually think, and I think the traditional understanding here would be that he was killed like a criminal. He was counted like to us humans to the authorities that were that right. Were killing so, him, so, was transgressors. right,
2: I agree. So his body's lying there with him. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. He identified. Yeah with us.
0: Well, again, cr- typical Christians, I would say that Jesus' body was restored, it rose again, his body is not dead, it's living, he's living.
2: Well, right. I would say that's true. He's kind of, re- he's restores everything, but first reduces it to dust. So, when when the fire but, and the worm but remember eats the, the corpse,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, Peter, but remember yeah. that one of the prophecies about Jesus is that um, the Lord would not let his Holy One see decay. So, when you say that he does let his Holy One see decay. You can see why I'm like passionately against that view um, to say that he does let his Holy One see decay. He does let the body of Jesus rot um, with the rest of humanity and that we will all view our own flesh rotting in hell.
2: Yeah, yeah. so that's an interesting point. doesn't let him see corruption. So, uh, yeah, I, I think he's, I think he takes on he enters into that dust and it's no it rises from the dead <laughs> that, so in other words my dad died and i'm looking at his ashes there in my closet and uh but i don't think i don't think my dad's there and i think th- that dust could be made new um so
0: it could be but it, it, it ha- he yeah. has seen decay i mean me and you we're all going to see the case day right hey. um, because we are both flesh and spirit and so the Lord did not it's, see decay. He oh. he died, but he did not decay. He his body was. Well, I'm not was I'm
2: decayed. not arguing that he decayed, but I I do think that he that his body, it, when when Jesus died on the cross, they took his body down. And it was a corpse.
0: uh Huh? No, it was, but it had right. not stinketh yet. You know, use old King James words.
2: So so in Isaiah he says they look on the corpses in the valley of Gehenna. And I think what he's saying is, if he's numbered with the transgressors, well, his corpse is there too.
0: Hey, but the prophecy about him being numbered among the transgressors is just about his earthly ministry. It's not about his ultimate, um, his ultimate standing before God, because obviously his the prophecy about him God being a
2: transgressor is in Isaiah. Isaiah. It's in. I- so when we're talking about a text that's in Isaiah. It's mm-hmm. not in the New Testament.
0: Yeah, but the text in Isaiah that you're talking about is it is not talking about the Messiah, right? It's talking about. Um, the new heavens and the well,
2: new sure earth. Well, sure, it's talking about the Messiah. Well, what, but the do you Messiah
0: mean? is bringing in the new age, but when they view the the bodies, it doesn't say the body of the Messiah is there. That's your, your assertion. No, there's
2: the body true. of the transgressors there, and he already established in Isaiah that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. The Messiah is numbered with the suffering servant. Principally, in Isaiah he, 53 was, is numbered he was numbered with the numbered transgressors. With
0: transgressors in his life, but he is not a transgressor. Like We, we would be blaspheming to the utmost to say that Jesus is a transgressor. Right. It and the people that
2: are praising God on the edge of the new Jerusalem are no longer those corpses. I agree. They're the body of Christ. I agree. They're the body of the one of the living new Jerusalem.
0: But I think this is also where we are distinct here in that I think you have a little bit of your cake and you're eating it too. You want us to have the imputed righteousness of Christ, which we both agree on that front. Like our righteousness is not our own. It's Christ. It's not I who live with Christ in, who lives in me. Uh, Principally, I believe, and this is a pretty evangelical doctrine, that when we are born again, um, our old spirit is, is dead, is put away. And instead, we have the new spirit, the Holy Spirit's a down payment. Our new spirit desires the things of God. However, we continue to sin in this life because of our flesh, because our flesh has not been made new. And we are both flesh and spirit. It's not like we're not our flesh in some weird Gnostic way. But when we perish... There's no purging. There's no transition. Our soul has already been born again. We already have eternal life, as Scripture says. We already have it today. So when we die in in body, we're alive in spirit, and we are already purged. Like, our body was the sinful portion of us. There's no purging period. There's no punishment period. Those who have eternal life have it already. And so when we leave the flesh, we have left sin.
2: In Romans, Paul says the spirit is life, mm-hmm. and then and then he says we become one spirit with Christ. So my old spirit doesn't just go away, but it somehow it enters into communion with Christ, and the the body, in fir, in First Corinthians 15, is this old body of of death. And so the part of the problem in understanding all of that, I think, for English speakers and Americans is that the word soul gets translated differently in different places. But the, the, but this but Paul is still waiting to be delivered from his body of sin and death. He says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? So, I, I think he would argue that the eternal life in me is Christ in me. But Christ is imprisoned in this old man, this old self that needs to be sacrificed. So he daily he, and his, you know, his practical point is present your bodies, your Soma uh, sacrifice, living and acceptable, holy to God. So yeah, but
0: here's here's where you have like you want your cake and you're eating it, too. If you believe that we are only righteous because of Christ's righteousness in us and when we die, we'll be judged. God will, you know, split the, the goats from the, the sheep. And when he judges a as sheep, assuming we are sheep, um, he won't be looking at our works, right? We both agree with this. He's actually looking at Christ's works. And so mm-hmm. if God is looking at Christ's works when he looks at me as sheep, if, you know, assuming I'm a sheep or you're a sheep, um, he he won't have anything to split and say, okay, this part of Michael, that's that's goat Michael. This part of Michael is sheep Michael. He'll only be looking at Christ. So if you believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ, there's no, there's no splitting. There's no um, purging that can happen because... If, if there was purging, we'd all be lost because suddenly God is judging us based on our works. And if he judges us based on our works, we are, we're damned.
2: Well, I think, well, I guess I was really confused by maybe I just didn't follow part of that. But um, I, I, I guess I don't understand what you, say that again, I didn't when, follow that.
0: In Judgment Day, we both agree that God is splitting the sheep and the goats based on their works, right? That's what he says in his parable.
2: Yeah. So one, the, the sheep's works are Christ's works. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's righteousness in me. So I agree. The goat's works are the works of my flesh. So th- let me put it this way. I can exist in my old man or new, my new, my consciousness can be in my old man or my new man. So Paul talks about entering but the inner it, it tent, cannot. which is like,
0: I mean, Christ says that you're either a good tree or a bad tree. You're either Christ or you're not Christ. You cannot be split like this.
2: Well, you thing. have to, he he says, make the tree good or make the tree evil. So now you have to ask a question about what, what's the tree that he's talking about. I think there's he a says, part of me. He says a good tree
0: produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Right, a right, right. A bad tree right, cannot right, produce good right, fruit and, and a good tree right,
2: and right, fruit. And yeah. It, yeah, so, so it, a tree it, is like a, a system or a way of thinking, right? So there's a part of me. No, that believes a, a I man. create my. It's a
0: person. It's a man because he goes on to say in the exact same phrase at Sermon on the Mount he says, like likewise, you know, like this this parable is also this parable. Um, a good man produces good things from his storeroom of good, and a bad man produces bad things from his storeroom of bad. So he's speaking about people, not not systems, Were, not portions of people. Did you used
2: to be bad? Were you, ever, were you ever bad? He, have you been the bad? The
0: old man was. That's why I had to yeah. die. Okay, so
2: I'm talking about your old man. I'm saying, and Paul talks about putting the new man on. So you have to ask the question, what does it mean by put on the new man? So I, in my flesh, my way of thinking is that I take knowledge from the tree. and And I think... The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a picture of the law. I want information in order that I can apply it to myself and make myself in the image of God and build, build my ego. That self, that psychicos body, as Paul talks about it, is an illusion. It's just, a, it's just like a bad dream. So Paul talks about waking up. And I have to wake up from this reality that I'm better than other people because I made these choices that turned me into a better person by taking the law and applying it to myself. So I can look at the tree that way, or I can look at the tree as the tree of life, in which case Jesus is the life and he gives his life to me. And so every good thing in me is this gift from him. And then I can live, and that's a pneumaticos body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. that's the new man even growing within this old man. And the new man is a man of humility and gratitude and joy and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And all of those things are fruit. They're not works. They're things that God has produced within me. So that, But that man is trapped within this prison that is my consciousness of me as an individual in competition with the rest of humanity trying to justify myself. So the self that thinks it can justify itself has to die that's the thing that has to be that i have to keep going back to the cross and surrendering myself to jesus and then the self that believes it's saved by grace through faith that self that wants to do good that has a that has a truly free will a will that loves in freedom well that self grows within the old grows within the old self but every time i go to church and i come to the communion table I need to surrender that old self and put on the new self, like Paul is talking about. And the new self is not a—it's not a question mark. The new self is an accomplished fact um, that exists in the heavenly places, even with Jesus. So it's like a process of waking up from the illusion that is—that is my ego.
0: But if you think that you come to Christ with both good and bad, you will—you'll be judged bad because. As Paul says, as James says, no. as the whole scripture says, if you transgress in but one part of the law, you've, you've broken it all. So if the Lord well, judges the word, you both the word in a sheep, you're just a goat.
2: A word that's often translated judgment in the New Testament is Croesus or crisis. And the word refers to the actions of a priest in the temple that cuts the flesh from the sacrifices. And you remember that in the sacrifices, part of the animal is offered in the fire and part of the animal is unclean and gotten rid of another, gotten rid of another ways, like outside of the camp. So, so I would go, yeah, there's, I I guess I don't, I don't understand how it sounds, Michael, like you're saying that because you're a Christian, there's no sin in you.
0: Well, quite the opposite. Like we all know that we sin, um, but it's because I still am in the flesh that I sin. And now we're like you're saying, right. we're so, still called so, to, to put on the new man, to to resist the flesh, um, to to embrace Christ. Right. But so when to, we die, we lose off, the flesh.
2: So to put off the yeah. So when we die, we have to we put off the flesh. But we don't have to. Do,
0: God does it for us. You know, like the flesh is dead. Like there it is. Right. Right.
2: So right. So that's why we go to the cross. Right. We go to the cross to say, look, I'm I'm gonna. I'm dying to my own ego right now, and I'm offering my body to you. So, Jesus, when I die, I'm ready to go. Just take me in. But if I hang on to my ego, yeah, then that's how I think I get trapped in the outer darkness. So, really, what I'm saying is very much like I think every most most other evangelical Christians say. I'm just saying, I think Scripture testifies that Jesus descends into the outer darkness, and even if people are consumed by the fire and reduced to dust, the story isn't necessarily over. But,
0: but the Lord does not, can I Jesus, does not here? descend into um, Gehenna. He descends into Hades. Am I wrong there?
2: I, I'm, I didn't, I'm sorry, what was the question? But
0: Jesus, when he dies, descends into Hades, not Gehenna. Am I wrong there? he
2: i'd say he is gehenna so when you look at jesus in the old testament or when god appears in theophanies like the word of god or um the god man in the old testament or jesus in the revelation he he shows up as this man on fire and he is the judgment so when he sits on top of the the throne he's sitting in the judgment seat so the judgment is this fire the presence of he's the presence of god he's the face of god so so he's he is um so do you, coming face to face with jesus that, this is why no man can see god and live is to lose your life and find it
0: but he, okay but the the scripture we both reference for jesus descending into hades is from second peter right and that does not well, say and, he's descending to himself i mean he, he descends to hades to go preach to the souls there about victory right and, and
2: and god says my word is fire isn't my word fire and jesus is the word
0: yeah, but we both know that fire can mean a lot of things, right? Fire can be the judgment of well, God. Or it can be go
2: go himself. back and look through all of Scripture. When people authorize un, unauthorized fire, like what's his yeah. name Nadab and what's his the sons of Samuel, Samuel, they get destroyed by fire. The the beast from the Yes, the beast from the land, he has to get permission to call down fire from heaven. Who's he getting permission from? He's getting permission from God. Uh, So it's like stolen fire. So I think one of the lies of the evil one, and I've had some wild encounters with that kind of stuff. One of the lies of the evil one is that he controls the fire, and he doesn't. He's terrified of the fire
0: but the, it, it's a it's a weird thing to take fire and run with it like that because we also know that Ahab and other wicked kings made their sons pass through the fire and that certainly wasn't some weird refining bringing them to God moment it was putting them on the throne of Ashdod and Baal and making killing them right, right. So, so it wasn't it,
2: i don't think that the problem was who they were worshipping the problem wasn't the sa- wasn't that there was fire so when paul says present yourselves a sacrifice living holy acceptable well, that's after thousands of years of tradition and sacrifice is a daily activity. Um, so I, I don't and when and actually in the Old Testament when God talks about the destruction of Jericho and the Canaanites and he issues the ban, the word in Hebrew is harem and it, it means as a devoted offering and all the devoted offerings went into the went into the fire. So what was the difference between? The Israelites doing that in the Old Testament, and and the kings of pagan nations. Well, it was who they were making the offering to? So, and and one of them is love. One of them is a is a false fire. So, um, I obviously don't believe that God is asking us to burn our children with fire. But I do believe that God is saying, all of you. Present yourself as a sacrifice, and one day you you may die for your faith, or you may be, you know, you will die, and God is in char- in charge of all of it.
0: Yeah, and all all I mean to show is that you you're saying. Can I go to the bathroom cannot... and we take a break?
1: <laughs> <laughs> or when I get back, I can have my interjection. <laughs> well, how
0: about I mean we could go on all day, right? Like this could be a five-hour episode, honestly. So we probably should cap it at some point, Theodore. Um, all, all I was okay. going to say is when you say that. Gehenna is necessarily the judgment of God, like seeing God, becoming God, by entering the lake. Um, it's, it's not necessarily true because we do see other fires in Scripture, like the fires of Baal or the fires that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which God brought, but they were total, like, death destruction. They weren't some refining fire for Well, Ezekiel
2: God. 16 says that Sodom and Gomorrah are made new and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in the same way.
0: And it was. The people of yes, the Jerusalem and Jerusalem
2: is made new. In fact, you are the new Jerusalem.
0: Right. So Sodom. So I wasn't alive in 70 A.D. Right. So totally different people were destroyed in that Jerusalem, and now there's a new Jerusalem that God is making it a totally different. Yeah, but
2: I. I think, but I. But I think you are the bride of Christ, and the bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem, and the old is, the old is destroyed by the fire, which is the presence of God. And the word of God. So that's what I'm saying. The fire separates the old self from the new self. But, and the but old the self old is... The old
0: Jerusalem was destroyed by the like physically by the Romans. We both agree, right?
2: Yeah, right, right. So that wasn't... Yeah, the test and so, the so, the, so there is a... Right, so every time I light a match, I'm not saying that, oh, this is this kind of glory or something. And yet in some weird way, it's related um, because Jesus is the light. I mean, I think there are a lot of statements in Scripture that we just need to take much more literally and once you take them literally they all synchronize
0: i suppose we can agree with that one that we should both take certain scriptures more literally okay theodore i'm clearly i've taken over okay, so your I'll... grand design so <laughs> please you, wrap Michael, us up take anyway. whatever long you need to you. yeah
2: hey you guys are great sorry i'm yeah. hopefully this is you know yeah, i think it's, it's really this fun this is fun for me but yeah i you know.
0: appreciate the oh, i really appreciate that back and forth
2: okay yeah Um, so
1: so the question that i thought so say again correct me if i'm wrong and help expound uh, upon this but um do you think that jesus is the seed the remnant and therefore jesus is in all of us but the holy spirit is not until we're like regenerated or something so do you like jesus sorry
2: yeah, so now when I talk I'm going to be conjecturing, all right? And you'll know that when I say these things, I'm stepping into 2000 years of of warfare, church history and arguments, okay? So the, the, so the I, well, let me let me say this first. I really think part of our problem in understanding scripture and this is way bigger than anybody will admit or most people admit, is I think that we're stuck in a modernistic view of space and time that isn't biblical, and that is now being undone by modern physics. And that's the idea that everything that is real lines up on on this linear timeline and exists in space as we experience it. Well, you know, Einstein, um, Max Planck, quantum physics, they from a whole bunch of different angles in the 20th century they came along and said you know what uh time actually doesn't work that way and space is is fluid and i think that's fascinating because that allows us i think to take scripture more literally and scripture will talk about the age to come and it'll talk about the age that is but it it views space and time very very differently so now i lost track see i haven't had my chicken strips i lost track of your question (laughs) theodore why did i say that yeah
1: we're burning you out yeah so what was the question again sorry um so do you believe that jesus is in all of us right right as like a seed or something but the holy spirit is not
2: right? right so let me let me throw this out at you too so yeah dang I th- I think there's this fascinating connection between the two trees in the middle of the garden, the cross in the garden on Calvary, and then the tree of life in the New Jerusalem, that in Scripture they all show up in the same place, and somehow they're all related to each other. Another fascinating thing about that tree and that garden is that it exists at the boundary of space-time as we experience it, and the age to come, which is eternity. So you remember Paul talks about it this way in two places. Well, it's in whether you think Paul wrote Hebrews or not, and then Hebrews and Corinthians. He talks about us as being the ones upon whom the end of the ages has come. As if when Jesus said, it is finished, he really meant space and time themselves are finished. So whenever we... And then he delivers up his spirit. So whenever you get to the boundary of space-time as we experience it and eternity, things get kind of confusing. I say that because God creates Adam, He creates humanity, by breathing His Spirit into a bag of dust. And, you know, we've been talking about the dust and everything. Well, you know, you can follow this one through. I think it's neshama when He... Um, yeah, neshama is the word that's used in Genesis. But then neshama is with equivalent with Ruach, which is the very Spirit of God, and, you know, Solomon talks about, does the Spirit return to God who gave it, you know, what happens to that Spirit? So, I I don't know how to get around the picture that the Spirit of God is placed in people. So, if a person is a person, according to Scripture, the Spirit of God is in them, and the Spirit of God appears to be in them up until the day that they die. But then, of course, Jesus delivers up his spirit on the cross and that's the spirit that comes to us at pentecost so and yet if those two moments are somehow the edge of space time and eternity all of my distinctions are going to be they're going to be hard to make so i think that the picture that i like is that every person is really like a temple and you know there are these cool stories in scripture that we have kind of we don't pay attention to but if a person really is a temple well that means that in the very depths of my being there is this holy of holies but I may live in the outer parts of my temple separated from that from the very spirit of God within me and that spirit is the spirit of love the spirit of truth this uh the the spirit of wisdom and yet it's it's in this body of flesh that I'm building so I need the true the true self needs to be that spirit is Within me, and yet at the cross, uh, Jesus sends his spirit, and the spirit can come through the word preached through all sorts of different ways. But that, you know, like the psalm talks about deep calls to deep. But when, when I see who Christ is, somehow I think there's like a curtain in the depths of me that rips, and what's inside, like a fountain of living water, it gets fertilized or whatever the picture is, then begins to fill the whole the whole temple and my spirit like paul said whatever that breath is that god breathed into me in the beginning it becomes one with christ and this is i think is a fascinating picture about sacrifice when you consider that the spirit is in the blood like the life is in the blood and if you think of us as one body well you could think of fallen humanity as one body racked with cancer and every cell in that body is focused upon itself so it doesn't it, it eats the cells around it. So a vet, I think a vessel of wrath... We're all vessels, but a vessel of wrath is like... A, a, it's like a person that hangs onto the life. So in the beginning... Now this is really fascinating. In the beginning, God breathes into Adam. It isn't said anywhere that Adam, or man, surrenders his breath in any kind of significant, specific way until in each gospel it says jesus who is the last adam surrenders his breath on the tree what happens when he surrenders his breath well god breathes it right back into him and he rises from the dead so the way i like to think of it is that all of humanity we're all like we're all like children holding our breath in fear and terror and self-centeredness well if you hold your breath if i well i'll look alive for maybe two three minutes um but because you know i'm old and not in great shape, probably pass out and die pretty soon. But if I surrender the breath, a new breath comes in, I begin to live. Well, if every person is like one of those cells, and and the life is Christ's life, we begin to live, I begin to live, when I begin to circulate the Spirit, when I begin to love. And what is love? Well, love is a decision to lose my lose my life and find it. Love is a decision to give myself away, and then it allows me to receive... From others, so I say there's something mysterious going on there. But somehow the spirit is there in the beginning. The spirit comes through Christ. You know, being baptized in the Spirit means that you're immersed in the Spirit. Even that decision to, you know, Jesus says, "Look, I didn't, um, you, you know, you, uh, you didn't choose me. I chose you." Well, how did they? How did they choose him? Well, it must have been his spirit at work within them um, that caused it. So, that's not a clean answer for you, and like I said, that's me speculating, but that's what it seems to me Scripture is saying. So, why is Jesus so interested in me? (laughs) Well, I'm like his severed finger. And if I remain cut off, lying on a table, yeah, I will decay um but it's when i'm grafted back into the tree when i'm sown back in and the life and the spirits and the blood begins to circulate and that i begin to live
0: yeah and that image i think is when we look when when jesus is looking to to save the lost to find the lost to save the lost we would say it's uh, his elect right those who are lost of his sheep not the perishing um but those who would perish without him but you know he's he's elected uh I'm only, I'm only time-conscious, Theodore and, yeah, and Peter. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do you want, do you, Theodore, you're the grandmaster here, Sebastian. I don't know if you guys have any last like, final questions that we want to wrap up
2: with. Well, let, let, let me say this, too. The thing that I sent Theodore was something that I prepared 20 years ago when I was put on trial. And what they asked me to confess, I just in good conscience couldn't confess without being unbiblical and then also just lying. So I put together this... That document, which then we turned into a little book at a conference, but I think it's the best—the um, well, best paradigm for this view that that would be accessible to most people that I know of. I mean, on a on a much more grand level, I think it's the paradigm of people like Karl Barth and a lot of great theologians. But this conversation is so difficult because there's a paradigm shift involved. So, you know, once the paradigm shifts, you got to go back and look at every little piece and you, and, but once you are aware of the two paradigms, it's easier to have the conversation. So I'd encourage folks if they, you know, if they want to get that, you can get it. We have it for free on the relentless-love, yeah, relentless-love.org site, or you can order it on Amazon and I just titled it all things new, but that gives that gives the paradigm. And, you know, like I said, it's a paradigm that I came to looking at scripture, but then also realize, Oh gosh, this has been around for, for a long time.
0: Yeah. Um, I'll let long-time viewers of found cause know my, my feelings on those who have to structure paradigm over scripture, probably are misreading scripture. Um, <laughs> just to be a hot take, I, don't well, even do you like have a you have
2: or. a par- you have a paradigm. Everybody called, has a paradigm, right Amen. Right. But so have I'm to, saying it. if I have to correct so you saying, with my
0: gigantic paradigm, it's pro- it's probably pro- a red flag that I'm reading scripture poorly. Um, I agree. Everybody well, comes in with a lens, yeah. So at a certain
2: point, list. you got to go. Maybe I'm not looking at what i think I'm looking at, and then you got to go back I mean, and reanalyze the paradigm. I,
0: I have been corrected many times in the past, so like I'm not yeah. claiming to have the paradigm know paradigms, but I am saying people on my side sometimes set up paradigms that I'm like, okay. If you have to give me a huge prep and then I can read scripture at that prep, uh, I'm I'm wary of it because scripture usually speaks plainly, maybe the exception of Revelation and some other. God
2: consigned all the disobedience that may have mercy on all. Uh, As in Adam all die, so in Christ will be, all may be made alive, Mm -hmm. behold. I make all things new. This is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, making peace by the blood of His cross. Yeah, and He
0: sends out then, the the so the net and gets separates the sheep from the goats, and He puts the bad fish in one place and the good fish in the other <laughs> yep, place. I and,
2: agree with all those fine. all those things. I totally agree with. I agree with. So
1: those. the last the last thing, if we have time again to that I, want to finish with is like the meaning of eternal.
2: Yeah, well that's and huge. Just, that's huge. Right. So let me so, yeah let me just say that so. Oh, go ahead. So you keep going talking, Theodore, and I'll shut up till you tell me to go.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I just had uh, two scriptures that I would reference, and then we could talk about like Ion and Ionios. Uh, I, Ionios.
2: So. Aon, yeah, Ionios. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way,
1: Spash. I know
0: it's yeah, so quiet. It's so like it. our man behind the book. He's like the Greek guy. So uh, if we're relying on Greek stuff, he's like
1: a part-time linguist kind of dude.
2: Just for fun. Cool. Cool.
1: Um, so, do you just want me to read those um, two verses and then... You uh, decide it, about.
2: Or? Yeah. Okay.
1: okay. Sure. Okay. So, regarding, like, eternal, how eternal, how everlasting, et cetera. Um, so, Mark 3, verses 29, um, it says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but, it is, uh, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is at, uh, yeah. This is at least saying that uh, there is something that is unforgivable, and it's an eternal sin. And Jesus was responding to accusations made of him by the very people who should have known better, and perhaps yeah. did know better.
2: Right. Right. Um,
1: and then Mark three twenty-two recounts the scribes who came down from Jerusalem saying he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Just as context for that. Um, and then just the other one was Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries.
2: Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, I can't... So so where do I start? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, Also, yeah, oh, well, so the... The one in Mark is really fascinating. So, and let me just say if people want, on the website, you can go in and look at sermons that are on particular verses. And I've preached on the unforgivable sin and blasphemy against the Spirit several times from different, different, uh, gospels. So, yeah. So, do you want to read it one more time? Mark three?
1: Sure. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal, of an eternal sin. Oh yeah. I yeah. quote so,
2: it. so so when it says never and you know we'd have to go back and look at the Greek, I think it's saying not in the age, if you were to translate it. Um there and and then and that's a, it's an Ionios sin. It means so if it means that well let me I need to define Ion and Ionios before I answer oh, the please. question. Yeah. So what I think I I think Ion is a pretty easy word to define because it it's uh, well it's like our English word eon. It means an age. So if I, if, um, you know, we, we say we talk this way all the time: uh, this age and the age to come, whatever. The Bible does also talk about an age to come, and there's the the word ionios. Ion is a noun. Ionios is an adjective, mm-hmm. and. There is really no English equivalent, to ionios. So people really struggle to know how to define it. So like Young's literal, um, I think it says age enduring. I think the best definition of ionios is um, of the age. So it's something of a particular age, and the age that's coming is God's age, which is a very different kind of age that I think is outside of chronological chronological time. So, so if
1: hmm? so, if um, if the Bible intended to say, like, truly eternal, what, what Greek word would it use Ion,
2: Ionios. There's another word, idios, which I think means something more like forever, which is a different concept. So, So it's hard to even talk about this in English, let alone through a few different languages. But if you think of time as lying on a line, one moment following another, if that line never ends, it just keeps going, or if you talk about all of that timeline, I think you might use the word idios. Ionios, of the age, means something that's off that timeline. So, when Scripture says, you know, when God says, I am that I am, or Scripture says that Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, before Abraham was, I am, says Jesus. You're going, okay, well, you are not, you're not living in the same time zone as me. That's, that's something else. That's, and I would argue, yeah, that's the the age to come, the reality of the seventh day. When, And it says this right at the very start of the Bible, when everything is good and it is finished. I, see, I still think we're in the process of creation, and the cross is the means of creation. But there is this reality where it's all finished. In that reality, God fills is all in all. And so that means mercy is all in all. Forgiveness is all in all. So the to... The blasphemy against the holy spirit i think is unforgiveness and if i don't forgive i won't be forgiven in other words i can't i can't enter into that new reality until i forgive and we think of forgive in terms of penal substitutionary atonement which is a little weird because in greek the word epheme can also be translated just let or allow in other words i have to I have to allow for God's mercy upon mercy upon everything. So, when He says that they, uh, in Mark, it, it, the blasphemy against the Spirit, and I'd have to go back and look at these, and I know I've written a bunch of stuff on it, but I think what I'm doing is I'm doing the very thing I was talking about that a vessel of wrath does. I'm hanging on to the life. I'm not giving, losing. So if I if I forgive you, what am I saying? I'm going well. Theodore, I give you some of my life. You can, you you go ahead and take my life, sin against me, but I'm going to give you that life, and I'm going to trust that God's going to give me more life because it was actually never my life in the beginning because He's the life. So um, that that will not that that as long as I refuse to forgive, I remain in this age.
0: And can I? Clear? And then, well, so you mentioned you take it, Theodore. I think you. Can you hold that thought a little yes, bit? Yes, absolutely.
1: So you mentioned uh, Ion- Ionia's, and so Matthew 18:8 8 has that, which is it's better um, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled uh, or lame than it than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the Ion- Ionia's uh, fire. Right. So, so the
2: Ionia's fire is. is- I go, Ion like I said, the fire is the very presence of God. So God is Ionios. I mean like William Barclay says, kind of the foundational definition of Ion or Ionios has to do with God. That's what God is. It's God's age. And he speaks space and time into existence, which is remarkably consistent with modern with modern physics. Um so yeah, see, I do need my chicken strips. So I had a thought there. Um oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so cool. I love this. I love this passage. In fact, I just read a story about a guy in an insane asylum that gouged his eye out because of that verse. As you know, Origen supposedly cut his testicles yeah, off because of that verse. Uh-huh. And he says, he's, So, Jesus says, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, but he goes on to say, the thing that causes you to sin comes out of the heart. It's not your eye, it's not your hand. And if it were, it would be better to cut it off because God's going to give you a new one and you're trapped in this old body of death but the thing that causes you to sin is that you've believed a lie and the lie is that you can justify yourself and so you have to get rid of the you have to get rid of the lie you cannot enter you cannot believe the lie and stand in the presence of god and now this is where it gets like so profoundly simple that i just love this um and that is that god is the creator all i'm saying is that god is the creator and the illusion that i am my own creator unadulterated in his presence, that goes up in smoke. It evaporates. So if I'm stuck in that illusion, well, that self will die. That self can't exist in the presence of God and being exposed to God, poof, it's gone. Because it was nothing but it was nothing but illusion.
0: Perhaps you see Theodore's point, Peter. He's saying that if you're equating Aeonias with God, which you are, so God is forever, he lasts all the ages he sustains the age when the same word is used for this sin this unforgivable sin um wouldn't it also be eternal like us as long as god lives this sin lives
2: right so what i'm saying is the sin is a trespass right so um an ionios oh yeah an ionios sin i think it means that it always remains a sin um so yeah i i
0: isn't every sin I only in that regard then because God's nature is unchanging so lies are always bad
2: Well until they're filled with truth Yeah, so I so I guess so let me think about this see if I'm tracking with what you're saying So yeah, do you want to you'd have to do you want to read it again? Yeah? Uh, if it, it I says, didn't get it
0: it's mark three we'll twenty nine says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness But is guilty of an eternal sin
2: Right yeah. So, so this is the yeah. I thing think thing it means that it, like, it's a sin that just is always is always a sin. And I,
0: I mean, it's it's a unique phraseology is why we point to it because it's not right. Right, and it it's it's challenging
2: because you're talking about things that the human brain doesn't. um Yeah. I I I think he's saying it's a violation that will that will never change. So the, if I. So if I steal money from a bank and the owner of the bank comes along and says, um, you know what, I forgive you. You don't have to give the money back. Well, you go, okay, well then uh, I guess that's all resolved. But I think what, what Jesus is saying is if I don't forgive, no one's going to come along and say it's just fine to not forgive. You're going to have to give that back you're, you're gonna have to give your resentment back you're gonna have to give you're gonna have to What whatever that that honor that you took whatever it is you you have to you have to surrender it you have to forgive uh,
0: again it, it'd be odd if that were the case because murder is also something that's permanent and there's no there's no no i i think his life so so this eternal. would
2: be an example i think murder is taking life and when when we crucified jesus we took his life when he says, "I forgive you," I th- I think he's saying, "But you 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 don't have to pay the life back because you can't pay the life back. It's not even it's not even your life." Um, so.
0: But we we do die for the death of Jesus. We we our old spirits die. We're reborn again. So right. We, we surrender our life,
2: but the life that we surrender was never ours in the first place.
0: Oh, it was ours. It's it's given by God, but it is given to us.
2: Well, Jesus says, I am the life. So if he comes along and says, I'd like my life back, he still is the life. I'd like, so I, so I, yeah, I guess I, I see I unforgiveness. sorry as from
0: the, the direction and the theater's trying to signal it here. Something yeah. eternal, regarding, the point was regarding eternal. Regarding
1: eternal life though, <laughs> I just wanted to mention, so Ionias, eternal is also used in the Matthew twenty-five forty-one and 46 uh-huh. is depart from me accursed ones into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then also these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Um, and then ni- uh, Revelation yeah, Revelation 19 verse 3 is where it's talking about the smoke that rises forever. So that's yeah, the that, of the... Yeah, that doesn't...
2: Yeah, it says into the age, the age of the ages or something like that. Yeah. But again, so, if, so, if so say the, that if, it's an
0: age... It, you you're insinuating that it's that it's a limited time that it will cease to.
2: No, I'm saying that there is another age. So if I say Ionia, strictly it could re, it could be an adjective referring to a particular age, um, but I think technically in, or usually in scripture when it says of the age, it's a way of saying of the age. To come, so like in Matthew 25. So I think I'm getting your question better now. So I really am. Like I haven't eaten so in Matthew in Matthew 25 when he says they will go away into the Ionios Colossen is the Greek, or they, they will go off into Ionios life. And remember the goats and the sheep, they go into the same fire. There is sacrifice in the fire. Well, I think what it's saying is that the punishment is
0: going into the same fire. But continue.
2: Well, in the he's standing in front of the temple three days before the Passover lambs are sacrificed. So there's a picture in their head. So, but but what I'm saying is that, um, that that I that I think the life the Ionios punishment is like this is a punishment that's not going away. Um. So when I when my kids were little and they'd be do something, I'd spank them. Well, the punishment comes to an end, it goes away. I think he's saying this is something in God that just will not change. This is the way God is. He is life. So um, if I'm the punishment for darkness is light, the punishment for lies is truth, the punishment for self centeredness is love. Um, so and God is the very presence of those of those things. So, I, because it, the punishment is of the age, doesn't mean that I will always experience it that way. So, if you go to Jude, Jude mentions that it was Ionios, fire, fire of the age that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah aren't still burning. In fact, Ezekiel, you could go there and you won't find them burning, but also Ezekiel is the one that says God is going to make them new. So although the punishment was Ionios, in that the the thing that is the punishment, the fire, it doesn't change. It's it's of the age. And if you're of the fire, you aren't burned by the fire, like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. But um, it it accomplishes its its job. But the fire is not going to change. The worm doesn't die. The fire doesn't change and i think that the worm is a long another story but but i think it's referring to that this is the way reality is so if you're living in a false reality your false reality has to change not not where you're not where you're going
0: but when you i think compare, that's what it means when you compare eternal life to eternal death as they're compared right there in the parable
2: well, I, I don't know of any place where the scripture uses the word eternal death eternal Do punishment.
0: You? Apologies. Eternal punishment for an eternal fire in that case in Matthew 25. Yeah, eternal
2: colossus. yeah. When Which I'm refers, by it. the way, usually to a, a, a cutting or a shearing um, like you prune a bush.
0: In any case, both are compared. If we believe the punishment to be limited in whatever way, it's either limited by the length of the age or whatever, then shouldn't we also be equally concerned about the length of eternal life if it is also just of the age?
2: Well, there is no length in eternity, remember? So what I'm saying is, remember the what? timeline with But that's one the pro- but that is the
0: problem that we're getting at that you're saying the punishment is temporary, but then eternal life is eternal, whereas no, the No, I'm both- saying
2: the punishment is not temporary. The experience of the punishment is temporary. so, so could to the
0: eternal life be temporary that the experience of eternal well, life is sure, temporary could, based
2: on that verse, but but, but based. based on the rest of scripture, no. So God's wrath comes to an end. Scripture says that over and over and over again. So I, but but that but the thing that I'm punished with, that, that it doesn't talk about that coming to an end. But I tra- I change. So um, the very thing that is a terror to some can be a delight to others, and the thing that is a terror to some at some point can be transformed into a delight. And I think the fire is the presence of God. So, like I've used the example of disciplining my kids. Kind of, you know, I kind of had two forms of discipline when they were little. Like you go to your room and you sit there without dinner in the dark, alone, and that was punishment. But then there was another punishment, and that was when I would go in and sit next to them, and my punish, and my presence was a punishment because they knew that I'd want to talk about whatever happened. But at a certain point. There would be tears, and they would say, I'm sorry, and I'd say, I'm sorry. And then we would hug each other, and we'd go downstairs to dinner. I'm saying that I think that's what the fire is. So, th- And what it, what is it that burns in my three-year-old? Well, their ego, that independent self that doesn't need a dad, that can do it on their own. And, and that's what I'm saying. That presence, you can't escape it.
0: So the smoke of the torment will go up forever and ever. Is just God chilling with, chilling with sinners, waiting for them to come. It goes up for ages
2: sentence. and ages, and it talks about the satanic trinity being in the fire. Which, mm-hmm. so if you want to talk about what Satan is or isn't, that's another way long topic. Um, Probably not. But yeah, but it, it but it goes. But yeah, so it's interesting to look at it in the in the Greek, because it talks about this the smoke going up for ages. Wow but the ages come to an end Aonius. so uh-huh. jesus is the beginning and the end right it, that's what he says
0: it is but if we agree that god is eternal same word we agree that life is eternal same word then we agree that 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 the smoke is eternal it's eternal smoke of
1: torment. no
2: the, the smoke is not eternal so if you look in the text it won't say the smoke is eternal it'll say the fire is eternal
1: can i ask the, one last question smoke
2: yeah of yeah
0: their torment will go forever here? Okay. Final question. Us out
2: the it's been a while. We can be yeah. forever. It's the smoke okay. of their torment that goes up for ages and ages. Yeah. So,
1: if, if it is the truth that there is like an eternal, truly eternal, eternal, everlasting punishment that some people truly come to an end eventually, well, I guess either or. So I'm more sympathetic to con- conditional immortality, and Michael and Sebastian are more traditional in the hell realm Um, and so if God actually did mean either conditional immortality or traditional hell how do you think he would have made that clear in scripture or more clear you mean well I
2: yeah I I mean I think he makes it clear in Ezekiel 16 and I think he makes it clear in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So and if if he is the fire and the fire comes from his mouth, it's his word, it's the Theon. Well, then that fire maybe it showed up there, but the fire is somehow of the age. It's like well, the essence I, of of God. I think you God.
0: misunderstand. If if oh. you were arguing for our positions, like how would you change scripture so that our positions were plain? Which you know, oh, if
2: I was arguing for your well, your position, and, and you well then I would eliminate right? a whole bunch of the Bible. <laughs> I would take Exodus. <laughs> I would take Ezekiel okay. sixteen out. I would. <laughs> if you were a writer, like you're writing your if, own if,
0: book, what, yeah, what would yeah, you so say? Yeah.
1: So if God. Actually, meant to convey yeah. that the wicked will be brought to an end or will be consigned to an eternal fire and will not um, overcome and be redeemed. How would you think he would make that clear?
2: Right. By what I, why? Well, I think he would. Well, he wouldn't say that I will restore Sodom and Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay, and he he would he he would take out all the inclusive passages that that I don't know how to explain away, Um, but I think he would. But he would. So with conditional immortality, I think he. There there are lots of there are all kinds of passages that talk about God destroying nations and destroying all humanity. So I tell people, look, I'm I'm. I'm an annihilationist in that sense, in that I think all of humanity is going to be annihilated, and the picture in scripture of annihilation is you go into this fire, and you get consumed by the fire.
1: Right, but I guess annihilationists would say annihilationism is more ultimate, as opposed to um, like a a I don't thoroughfare or. What is that, yeah. So,
2: right. So the problem. So, like, I, I mean, I read Fudge. I read Fudge's book in seminary because of wrestling with all of this, and I really liked Fudge's book on the fire that consumes. It was really good. But years later, when I was preaching every week, and I would come across the inclusive passages, which I kept seeing in all these surprising places, when I try to understand a lot of them in the parables of Jesus, is I began to realize, well, when things get annihilated in Scripture, they turn to dust, and this happens in time, it happens in the ages. But if God wants to make everything new um, in the age to come, which isn't really even on this timeline, well, I don't see why He can't. I I don't know. So if He says He will, I don't see the Scripture that says He can't. Um, and. I don't know, I don't, I honest, when I was, so you've got to understand, and I could be just mentally ill, so I'm, that's <laughs> really. but 20, 20 years ago, I was really, I was put on trial, or no, yeah, 16 years ago, I was put on trial, and they couldn't figure out where I was unbiblical, this is the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, so they made me state my objections to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they said, the Westminster Confession said that there was a group of people that God could not save, and there's a group of people that God didn't want to save. I mean, they adjusted it kind of. But I don't think it, the Confession even said that. And and I, I, I was kind of desperate, because I, I mean, I had a church that grew from this small little church and this big church, and it was everything that I kind of dreamed of being you know and am like my kids were involved in everything so i pulled together all the scripture i could find and put it in one document and i was begging the guys the other in his epcs was mostly guys the other guys and my, the pastors saying help me help me i do not know how to explain away these inclusive passages and i've preached through all of this and these exclusive passages. They're scary. There's no doubt that God will kick your butt if you need to, and we all have to lose our lives to find them. But I can't find the passage that undoes these inclusive texts, and and it all happens through Jesus. It's all the work of the cross. And for you know, for these, this was the crazy thing. Most of those guys said that they were Calvinists. They just didn't believe in limited atonement, and I was going, well then. Pay attention to what you just said. Really if the atonement isn't exactly. limited, then it's gonna be effective and I don't find the passage that that undoes that. So that that's been my that's been my struggle. And and what what's difficult for me is I know that there are all sorts of people that will latch on to what I'm saying and then they'll turn around and say, So yeah, God probably really didn't mean most of the Bible. I think he meant all the bible i mean there's all the textual stuff and all the you know interpret the issues around interpretation but i think that's the testimony of scripture and and i know that there are i mean the I, the one that systematically that talks about it best systematically i think for a calvinist is karl barth and he was really the first one of the first commentators that i'd go back and read a passage and realize well this guy's taking the text seriously. He's not explaining it away.
0: Well You're doing good company and that we want to take the text seriously. And you're not wrong in mm-hmm. that plenty of people will take a conclusion they like from, from you or from us and then just you know, and then not yeah. obey okay the Bible. So we're both on the same page. We should yeah. look into yeah. scripture as our Yeah, that's Bible
2: I so way. you you guys are awesome. So Yeah. You
0: know. Well, um just for the sake of time, Theodore, Sebastian, I think we're gonna wrap up. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, sure. for your time. Thank you for coming. Yeah. With some young guys like us. And I know it's been two and a half hours now. So, uh, I well, really no, this is really helpful best. to me because
2: there's stuff maybe I haven't, I, yeah. that you know, I haven't thought of that I need to go back and look at. So that's great.
0: All right. Well, that is why we have found our causes in situations like this and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you. Yeah. For listening. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine. To my right has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Across the airwaves first, our co-host. It's been...
1: Peter, under the
0: PC. And last but not least, our guest and interviewee who is on the hot seat all day today. It's been...
2: <laughs> Peter. Peter Hyatt. <laughs> Look at that. Maybe you're <laughs> having an episode. That's what my today. mom called me. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you guys can go to foundcast.podme.com. You have download them all for your listening pleasure. You can go to YouTube or Facebook and find them there. We're also on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you might find your podcasts. And Peter's plugged his stuff. Or you can find him on YouTube and his website. Till next time, we talk about something completely different, I'm sure. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.